Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, good evening, everyone. I hope that you're having a fantastic week, wherever you are in the world. This is a continuation of our Pennsylvania series of episodes. I was so fortunate to have the chapter president of the Paranormal Sun, Nate Aud, in Pennsylvania, on again for another two-and-a-half-hour-long discussion. We covered ten great cases that we hadn't gotten to yet, and we had a few updates on some of the ones we've already covered. So it was a really interesting and an excellent conversation that we had, and I really want to thank Nate for coming on again, especially so soon. Thanks, Nate, for coming on for a second part. Thank you for sacrificing your Sunday evening to record, come on the show. And we spent almost three hours on this as well, folks, so it's another great conversation. We tried to keep it flowing as best as we could. I managed to stay out of too many quagmires, so it should be pretty easy listening for you. I hope you enjoy it, and as I say, we'll have Nate back again in future, I'm sure. Now, as for the next episode of The Paranormal Sun, I'm not sure just quite yet what I'm going to have out. But I'll try and update you as soon as I can. It's been a bit of an up and down week here at Tower Studios. Nothing bad, bad, bad. Uh, I'm okay. But yeah, it's there's just been a bit on. I, I've had a few things in the normal day-to-day -day life I've been trying to deal with that have taken a lot of brain uh, bandwidth. And yeah, it's just taken me away from spending as much time on the program as I would like to. But I mean, life gets in the way, right? <laughs> For any artist, life gets in the way. Sometimes I do think about it, you know, it's like there are definitely those days that I'm living that true rock and roll lifestyle. And uh, to Chris in Illinois and Max, man, Chris, you'll fully understand. You'd be proud of me, man. I'm living that rock and roll lifestyle. So there are a lot of days where depending on what I'm up to, I might stay up until five or six in the morning and then go to bed. And that's what happened in this episode. Near the end, you'll hear my voice start to give out. And basically, living that rock and roll lifestyle, man, I woke up on the day we were meant to record, and I just basically hopped up, did a few chores, and came rushing out here to the studio. So I didn't have a chance to properly get the voice uh, zeroed in, and by the end there, you can hear it starting to crack a bit. But I made it 90% of the episode without blowing it out, so I think I did pretty well. And again, Nate, thanks so much for coming on, man. I really do appreciate it. I had a great conversation. Now, for those of you who would like to follow Nate on Instagram, as I say and as he says in the episode, it's Nate underscore odd, so N-A-T-E underscore O-D-D on Instagram. And there's also a link in the show notes, so you can just go into the show notes and click on that link and head straight over and add Nate on Instagram. Like I say, he's a lot more active than I am on the old social media. He does an excellent job of posting up photos and videos of him going and exploring in and around his neck of the woods in Pennsylvania. So, again, thanks, Nate. I really do appreciate it. To you, my listening audience, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Each and every one of you all over the world. I had a few new listens in different places again this week. So thanks. I really do appreciate it, folks. If you want to follow and support the show, again, there's a link in every episode in the show notes. At the very beginning, it says you can follow and support the program here. You just click on that link. It'll take you to a link tree, and you can basically find the Paranormal Sun anywhere you want to, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or 
anything else, the webpage, you can just go and check it out. Now, I have just got done re-upping on the domain names for the next two years, so at least for the next two years, folks, if you're listening to this, you can go and check out theparanormalsun.com and theparanormalsun.org. Those are the websites. They're, they all go to the same place, but not going anywhere, at least for the next couple of years. So yeah, my friends, thank you. I hope that you enjoy. Like I say, sit back, relax, get yourself some snacks or a nice beverage, whether it be PG or adult. Sit back and relax and enjoy this program. It was a really good conversation with Nate. No news of the damned on this one, or we would be tracking well over three and a half hours. Hopefully you enjoy it, and let me know. Get back to me. Reach out to me on social media. Let me know what you think of the episode. And again, thanks, Nate. And enjoy, folks, and I'll talk to you next week. The views and opinions expressed by guests on The Paranormal Sun are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoint or the position of JT, The Paranormal Sun, or Tower Studios New Zealand. Nate, welcome back to cover over our second half of the Pennsylvania stuff. And I'm really excited, man. Number one, I really appreciate you taking the time. Because, again, uh, I know how precious time is. To me, as I've gotten older, personally, I believe that your time is the most precious thing we have. And anybody who takes the time to be on here, especially someone who's got the knowledge you do in the stuff that I've covered over about Pennsylvania, I really appreciate. And we've had a few developments, folks, since uh, we did the last episode about Pennsylvania. We've actually had a couple of cool things that have happened. So the first one, I'm just I'm going to mention them both, and then I'm going to let Nate tell us about them. The first one was that uh, a week or two ago, Nate sent me a post, and I looked at it, and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. So, folks, sure enough, um, here we go with our synchronicities, which I often have on the show. We talked about the, the legends of the giant snakes in Hell's Hollow, or sorry, not Hell's Hollow, Dead Man's Hollow near Pittsburgh in the Allegheny Trust uh, land area. And sure enough, here Nate sends me a newspaper article with this very large snake, and there's the snake in the photo, and I just thought, wow, what are the odds? We just covered this, and we're going to be covering it again. And the other one is that uh, Nate has gone and visited the property uh, where the Hatchet Jack murders happened, which, as we know uh, from the wrap-up of that, and ironically enough, that was the last... The last thing that we covered over on the first episode, but that, yep. um, yeah, that, that, that building is no longer there physically because they burn it down, but Nate's gone and visited it, folks. So, yeah, wow. So here, here we go right off the bat. We haven't even got into the new stuff, and we've got some updates on the other stuff. Yeah, I wanted to thank you again for having me back. It was a lot of fun last time, and I, I'm sure we'll go on for a couple hours here, <laughs> so brace yourselves, people. But, um, yeah, the, the snake was crazy because it was literally all that people in the Pittsburgh area posted about on Facebook. They were just sharing it. Oh, I bet. Um, so Frick Park is essentially a, this green area within the city limits of Pittsburgh. And uh, people take, you know, their dogs there to, to walk them, to do hiking. There's just different stuff to do in this this area. And I guess this person was walking along the trail and they just saw this huge black snake in the tree. So they took a picture of it and it started getting viral online around the area before the news. And then the news picked it up and they were covering it. Um, so it's 
it's funny, like you said, with Dead Man's Hollow, how there is that rumor of the giant snake. You know, it's could have possibly been something like this happening and it just got blown out of proportion um, by the person that saw it. But what they found was a giant black rat snake. And right. at first they thought it wasn't um, indigenous to the area. So they thought it was someone's pet or something. But they actually talked to some local um, people in, in the area, conservatives, and, and they said actually the rat snake can grow up to six, seven feet long. And it's actually a, a wow. snake that's pretty common in this area. I guess like you just don't see it a lot, but they actually like climbing into trees crazy enough and <laughs> they said um you know definitely now when you're walking around the park always keep an eye out they're not dangerous to humans like at all um they they eat small rodents so they would prefer to to eat a rat on the ground or something like that but they said you know of course it can be startling if you see a, a huge snake falling out of the tree or hanging in the tree so just keep your eyes open if you're if you happen to find yourself hiking around frick park um, just something interesting that happened. And there was like a meme that popped up today. I shared it on my story and they made it look like Kong versus Zilla, the <laughs> HBO movie. And it was actually the, it said the Frick Park snake versus the black bear. I guess there was like a black bear <laughs> up in Mount Washington a couple of weeks ago. So that was funny. No, that, that and is the, <laughs> And then with, um, Hatchet Jack, that was something that we had talked about and I had discovered online, unfortunately that the, the house was burnt for, it was just like, it became condemned. And then the firefighters actually used it as a, a practice place to put out fires. So it was burned down. Um, so I looked up, it was actually that article that you shared with me that actually had the address oh, cool. of his house. And so I just plugged that into Google maps cause you can find anything on Google maps. Um, and it brought me to a pin. Of course, there's no house there. So there's, it's really just like greenery when you look on it on Google Maps. So it was like an hour drive. It's just down in Washington County, Pennsylvania, which is the next county south of Allegheny where Pittsburgh is. Right. Um, and it's actually where the, there's like this trail. I don't know if it's, if it's the greater Allegheny passage, but it's basically this huge trail that, um, when I first got there, it's like bikers are coming across it and people are walking across it. So I parked my car on the side of the road and it's this old country road. And I was like, hope no one sees me. Like they're probably going to think I'm trespassing or whatever. But I just walked down and it was the strangest thing. Like I was like, I don't know where this is quite. Like I was following my GPS. And then there's just this huge overpass looking thing. And then there's a gate, like a, a metal fence almost. And it didn't say no trespassing or anything, but it was just like, this huge fence in front of this overpass. Um, so luckily, I, you know, I haven't, I don't have a huge beer belly yet. So I was able to squeeze <laughs> through the, uh, <laughs> the opening and the fence there. And there was just like some kids had taken some spray paint and it said forever Jack on the side okay. of the wall. So that's, that was something I was kind of able to capture in my picture a little bit. Um, but I knew I was in the right place, obviously. So that was cool. And then it's just like kind of this stream. And then it looks like almost because I'd read in the articles, the house was kind of on this path and it like the path went way back and the house was sitting up on the hill. So right now, all that's really there is this gravel path and this stream under the overpass. And then you like kind of walk up it and then it, it meets up with this trail. So there's people literally 
walking and running and biking straight over the spot where these murders happen. So that's that's kind of eerie if you think about it. Folks, for those of you out there in the audience who maybe don't know this or haven't heard of this, you might think, oh, well, that's all that they, you know, they use this for, for fire practice and they burn it down. But actually, funnily enough, again, just another one of those synchronicities. Um, those of you who have been listening for a while, you'll know that uh, I've got a friend who's got his own podcast called The Old 77. And uh, a friend of mine named Scott, and uh, I know the other guys on the show now as well through Scott. But anyway, Scotty and I went to school together in central Illinois. And sure enough, Scott was talking about this murder house in Litchfield, Illinois, which is, I mean, about 25, 30 miles away from where we went to school. And this murder happened in the mid to late 80s. And that's what he said. Same thing. They burnt the house down because I don't know what the laws are in every state. And we all hear these stories. I mean, kind of like poltergeist where they don't tell you that the house is haunted. But mm -hmm. yeah, it. Anyway, it does seem to be when you've got these real gruesome murders in recent times, maybe not back in the 1800s, but, and look, I, I agree with it. I, I'd rather not have people living in homes like that for a few reasons. The first thing is, um, then you've got this horrible crime that never dies. And uh, yeah, I, I do understand that we want the victims to have final resolution and all of that, but most of the time they just want to get on with their lives. The murder is not going to be reversed, no matter how many people go there and take photos. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then you've got obviously most of these homes end up being abandoned. And then you've got the safety issue with people breaking in there, falling down a flight of stairs and breaking their neck or something. And then, of course, it must be haunted. It must have been the ghosts of the of the murdered that killed them when, <laughs> when reality says it was more that just somebody wasn't very, you know, very bright and broke into an abandoned property. So, yeah, all I'm saying is that this is more common than you might think. And I, I just I thought it was I, again, Nate, in the last uh, four or five months, I, I've run into a, quite a string of synchronicities with things like this. And it's like I'll be covering something or I'll be thinking about something. And I don't know if it's just that whole uh, you think about buying a Jeep and then all of a sudden everywhere in traffic you see Jeeps or. But, yeah, I just found it very interesting that I was listening to an older episode because I'm trying to catch up on his podcast. And here he was talking about this, you know, this murder house and that they had used it for fire practice for the fire department to have, you know, practice putting out a fire. And I just thought, oh, OK. And that's what they did at Hatchet Jack. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I never looked at it from that way. But, yeah, and especially in a small town something that gruesome happens and yeah. legend legends don't die obviously even after you burn the house but like you said people it would be a hot spot for like teenagers and people like myself who like to to go to spooky places and try to talk to to ghosts through an app on their phone or you know see abandoned places so that makes sense yeah and, and things i mean things have changed a lot in the last um even in the last kind of 10 to 15 years with technology uh i often joke being a Gen Xer, I often, you know, we often joke about how we're uh, these old men and we're out in the front, you know, telling people to stay <laughs> off of our lawn. But we were really the first generation that kind of had uh, we had a foot in each camp. You know, we had a foot in the old school days of the cathode ray tube TV and uh, VCRs just coming online and everything else. But then we've got a foot in the high technology camp with smartphones and in the Internet and everything else. And 
I mean, again, you just think about what's gone on in the last 10 or 15 years. Just like you were saying, now you've got apps on your phone to do things like this that in the past there was no way that, yes, you could go somewhere and you could try and record maybe EVPs or something. But now with the way that it is, you've just got an app on your phone for just about everything. So what I'm saying is there are a lot more people you, you, in the past you might have had like we did, you know, when I was in high school, you might go out to kind of a spooky place and you might check it out. You might go out there once and go, okay, there's not a whole lot here. But if you got people who are filming YouTube videos or uh, trying to record these phenomena again, then that will drive them to go there again and again, uh, especially if they've got nothing else to do. I mean, I remember what it was like being bored on a, on a weekend and one of your buddies rocks up and says, Hey, let's go and check out this cemetery. Okay. And, and, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of ghost hunting. There was there was a lot of beer hunting, but um, thankfully uh, none of my friends were dumb enough to try and vandalize anything. But <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, it just goes to show that sometimes with these things, it it is better. I think, especially when you got these gruesome murders, that there's nothing left there really at the end. And then one other that I forgot to write down here, but um, you did have a post on. I covered over about the. Um, about the Buffalo Bill House from uh, Silence of the Lambs. Number one, man, um, I did note it uh, ahead of when I did the audio for the episode. Number one, you were spot on. They filmed the scenes from the mental asylum in the Allegheny County Jail. Oh, good. So, yeah, you were spot on with that. And so everybody, you know, where Hannibal's there and Jodie Foster comes and sees him and he's in the institution, that was the Allegheny County Jail. So probably there have been... Hundreds of millions of people around the world have seen that movie and not even realized, oh, that was filmed in the jail we were talking about. And the other one was that that Buffalo Bill House, um, I did find it quite interesting that they put it up and they were trying to get a pretty big chunk of money for it. I think 750000 or something like that. And they sold it a year later for about half of what they were asking. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's not an impressive house. It's just kind of like this i don't know i'm not good with architectural terms but it's just this older house that you would probably pay like fifty thousand dollars for if it was any other house in pennsylvania right um but because they filmed him like standing there at the door and, and things like that buffalo bill it's actually becoming someone a fan bought it and now it's becoming a, a bed and breakfast which is crazy and i can't wait <laughs> to actually book a stay there like obviously nothing much happened there other than filming a movie, yeah. but it's just cool like to say that you're at the Buffalo Bill House. Oh yeah, man. No, definitely. And again, you're you're not talking about some niche movie, as much as I love some of those. I mean, you're not talking about something where you have to know. I mean, Silence of the Lambs, even the people who didn't really delve they've at least heard of the movie, they know the character Hannibal Lecter and everything else. So yeah, um look it it, it is it is a good money making idea as well. There's yep, always going to be fans sure. lined up for something like that, yeah. So, so folks, uh, a few other things that I just wanted to cover over very quickly. Like I mentioned in the first episode, we we covered over all these cases, and I haven't even covered over some of the biggest ones in the Pennsylvania area, so not just Pennsylvania, but a few surrounding states. But the reason is that, number one, one of them I'm going to do a full episode on, at least probably two, and the other couple, it's just a matter of we had so much content, I didn't go too much into it. But I'm going to mention them just really briefly because Nate has been and seen these. And the first one is, folks, it's uh, is Kecksburg. 
which for those of you who don't know, it's one of the most famous UFO sightings in the U.S., where uh, purportedly a UFO crashed and the military recovered it in the 1960s. And then, of course, we've got Point Pleasant, which is in West Virginia, but it's on the border. The uh, I think it was off the top of my head, the Silver Strand Bridge was the bridge that went across um, from West Virginia, and that's the bridge that collapsed. Now, mm-hmm. one of the interesting things, Nate, as well, you might not know this, but uh, a couple friends of mine at the time, they covered Mothman on their podcast, and they did, I think, about four episodes, and I pointed out to them they didn't know until after they'd filmed. Supposedly, the I-beam that failed on the bridge that actually collapsed was the 13th I-beam, which um, I always oh, wow. found, yeah, I always found fascinating. There's There's a whole series of things that people have tried to claim tie the number 13 into Point Pleasant and the Mothman thing. And I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but I mean, it's like, it's not one or two, it's like a dozen or more. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you what, after, uh, I'll, I'll make a note here, so I, I try and find that for you and send it to you. Uh, it's just interesting. Again, it's one of those things. I know that numbers are strange things, and we can find synchronicities in a lot of things, but um, I always found it interesting. I always remember that that was the, the beam that uh, collapsed on the bridge. And then the other one, so Kecksburg, the Point Pleasant with the Mothman, and then the last one is, of course, Gettysburg. I mean, Gettysburg to this day, folks, for those of you who don't know, uh, to this day, more uh, American soldiers lost their life uh, at Gettysburg than in other any other battle in history. So Normandy, uh, Battle of the Bulge, anywhere else, uh, all the battles in the uh, Pacific Still to this day, more Americans lost their lives at Gettysburg than anywhere else. And off the top of my head, it was something like 50,000 men lost their lives in a three-day battle. And again, folks, this was before we had machine guns and tanks and all the other super deadly things that we have uh, running around the world now. So, of course, if there was anywhere in the world you would expect to have some residual energy and some spirits, it would be in and around Gettysburg. So I know, look, Nate's had photos up of himself with the uh, Point Pleasant Mothman statue, and he's also had some photos up with the Kecksburg Acorn. So, uh, Nate, uh, what what did you find when you went and checked out those sites? Yeah, so um, Kecksburg isn't quite as exciting as Point Pleasant, so I'll start with <laughs> Kecksburg, but... The, the mythos and, and like the, what happened in Kecksburg is what's really interesting. Like you had mentioned, um, so in, on a evening night in 1965, there was just this brought, this brilliant fireball that was flying across the sky and it traveled, I guess, from Ontario over like Detroit, Michigan, and it worked its way down over Ohio. And then all of a sudden it actually came over Pittsburgh as well. And Pecksburg is about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, just this little small farming town. And that's where it actually crashed. Um, and people saw this crash, this fireball crash in the woods, and they actually went out to the woods to look for it. Um, and I believe like some men in black type figures showed up and basically told them to go away. And the guy, one of the, the eyewitnesses was actually a boy, I believe, in his bedroom. And he saw this acorn shaped looking thing on the back of a truck just being taken out of the town and like they weren't allowed to talk like ask people about it or talk about it and it was actually covered on unsolved mystery 
Actors, which was like the show for this type of stuff that's, back in the, the 80s. That's when I first remember hearing about it. I mean, I remember seeing it on Unsolved Mysteries, and it's one of those cases that, I mean, to this day, I can remember the, the watching watching it. And I'm sure if I sat down and watched the episode, I mean, it was that vivid in my mind. So, yeah, definitely. That's where I first heard about it. Yeah. And there was like these hieroglyphics on on it and no one could really understand what it was saying. So they thought it was like a space language, of course, because they thought it was coming from space. But anyway, if you go out to Kecksburg, they actually have this monument that they recreated for the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. It's actually up on this kind of like light pole pillar thing and it has lights around it you can just stop by it's in in the middle of a random field next to like a fire station and you just walk up the hill and it's this odd looking someone i think someone commented on my post that they thought it looked like the mouth of a furby that's essentially (laughs) what (laughs) it's just this weird brown tan looking thing and it looks like an acorn and it has these these writings on the side of it but it's it's fun for a picture and i guess last year they didn't have it because of covid but sometimes the fire hall next to it will have like some type of kecksburg ufo incident um festival yeah it was look it was interesting enough i came across that i I wasn't really doing research per se because uh it I, i haven't got there yet but I saw it somewhere else, and they had a, a, a photo of one of the past festivals. And one of the things that I thought was really cool that they did in the festival was they had an old uh, military transport with the tarp over it. So it, like, showed it driving through the street, like how they said oh, wow. happened on that night. Yeah, that they basically craned it out and um, and drove through the street with it. Uh, but, yeah, look, again, it's just... Folks, I mean, outside of Roswell, which everybody's at least heard of, Kecksburg is, I mean, Kecksburg is, I, I've always looked at it, and when I discuss these UFO cases on the show, I'll kind of say Tier 1, Tier 2. Kecksburg is definitely a Tier 1 case as far as fame and people knowing about it and everything else. So we will get there at some point, but yeah, it's it's just one of those things. And you see, Nate, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that that... Uh, the acorn that's there now was actually from the filming of Unsolved Mysteries. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I learned that from Wikipedia, actually. <laughs> so take it as you will. I believe it was made for it, but you never know with Wikipedia. It's one of those things where, again, I've said it on the show over and over and over. I've got plenty of room on the show at any time for skeptics. I just don't have room for debunkers. So if you go into any conversation, just I'm going to prove it wrong just because I don't agree with it. That's where I've got a problem. I don't have any problem with someone who wants to look at information and and be skeptical about it. That's absolutely fine. But I see some of these uh, pages on Instagram, and oftentimes they're foreign language uh, UFO pages. A lot of them are from South America. And some of them I'll see a photo, and I know it's BS because I know the story behind it. And there was one that was quite interesting I saw a while back. It, It had it in Spanish, and my Spanish is passable. But thankfully, with uh, Instagram, you've got the translate function. And Mm -hmm. sure enough, they said, oh, why is this uh, U.S. uh, Mercury space capsule sitting off the side of the road in Florida, blah, blah, blah. But the story behind it is something completely different. And that story was that it was a concrete truck with the cement mixer had tipped over way back in the day in the 60s. And it was so heavy, they couldn't get it out of there. So they left it. And what the locals did, which I thought was pretty cool, I mean, an homage to Americana kind of folk art, they went and they painted it to look like a Mercury space capsule. 
And so it's actually a cement mixer. But this page was presenting this as, oh, this is a mercury capsule. And what's it doing there? Again, it just goes to show that, folks, uh, I keep an open mind, but you do have to be pretty careful with what you read out there because you can very quickly go down a rabbit hole of believing that every single thing you read is true. And I always love it when they'll say, oh, other websites have, have corroborated this. And you go to the other website, and the other website has just kind of copied and pasted what the first one had. <laughs> so it's like, well, yeah. you're not really – you're just in an echo chamber, folks. You're not really corroborating anything. Exactly. And then moving on to yeah. Point Pleasant. So it's actually about – it's not in Pennsylvania, but it's close. It's something that's near and dear to my heart. It's about three and a half hours from driving from Pittsburgh. But um, the Mothman is just huge. Like if you oh, know yeah. anyone that's into cryptos and that's – definitely like a tier one like you would say uh crypto but um in point pleasant of course there is the sightings of the mothman these kind of hillbilly couples they were teens and they're out in their cars hanging out driving down roads and by the old tnt factory <laughs> that, area that, that was always the cool bit to me was the tnt you know it wasn't just like abandoned and no it's t it's tnt bunkers you know <laughs> right <pretty> cool. <laughs> and um they saw, you know, this this pair of bright, shining eyes, and they saw this humanoid-type thing kind of flap its wings and fly up to the top of the tower at the TNT area. Um, and they were freaked out, of course, and the couples, I think there was two couples, I don't know their names, but they are in the car, and they were trying to get away from this thing, and it kind of jumped back off and just flew right next to them, and they actually, like, looked at them in the car. So that started this whole snowball of people seeing this and I, I believe there was actual newspaper articles yeah. and it was a whole thing um and it all culminated in in the silver bridge collapse and that's really what adds the tragedy and trueness to you know the story not seeing the mothman absolutely caused it but it's just something that kind of came up to a head and caused this tragedy in a, in a small town in west virginia i believe i do you know how many people died that night 20 23 27 something okay. like that it, yeah it was a large number it was you know wasn't four or five people yeah it was a pretty big amount because apparently that was just at rush hour and that bridge was chalk it was full mm -hmm. of full of cars yeah and it was like the weekend before christmas or something and, and yeah, everyone yeah. was you know there was presents in the water like because they had presents in their car just really tragic that something like that would happen around the holiday season especially um and then coming up, you know, over the generations, there's been sightings here and there. But um, now the town is really famous for the Mothman Festival, which happens. Didn't happen last year, of course, but it's coming back this year. I'm super excited. I got to go in 2019 uh, with my boyfriend. We actually made the trip down and it's just this tiny town and it's literally one street. Like if you think of those... <laughs> those towns and movies with one main street that's what point pleasant is and there's a mexican restaurant and we got to sit down there and eat and have a margarita and actually have a mothman burrito which is really <laughs> cool it's it's just it's just like plated to to look like yeah. a mothman shape they have the mothman um like coffee shop they have the world's only mothman museum which we got to go in and they actually have prop sets from the mothman oh, prophecies that's cool. Yeah, they have like a, a chunk of the, the road hanging up on the ceiling that was part of the collapse that they used for the, the silver bridge. And they have the drawings, you know, those creepy drawings yeah. that they were making of the, of Ingrid Cold and the Mothman. Those are there. 
Well, that, um, that's what I was going to say for me. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Mothman's a great story, but I'm, I'm one of those odd people. Oftentimes when you've got cases like this, I'm not necessarily drawn to the main attraction. I was always drawn to Ingrid Cold and his interactions with, uh, with Woody. Uh, I think it was Woody Guthrie off the top of my head, uh, but I might have his last name wrong. Um, yeah, uh, to me, it was just creepy as hell. And uh, apparently he claimed that Ingrid Cold came back and saw him many times over the years, but people just kind of chalked it all up to him being nuts. Uh, but yeah, look, um, I fully agree that if it wasn't for the, the collapse of the bridge, I think that this would just be another one of those kind of quaint cryptid stories that all states have. And it might be a little bit more well-known than others because of the movie and because of John Keogh, but I don't think it would have gotten nearly as big if you didn't have this tragedy. Mm -hmm. For sure. And and I, I would tell anyone to drive, you know, I don't care if you're, if you're just looking for like a, a one day road trip or whatever you need to go to this festival. It's just crazy because I mean, there's a ton of people. So if you don't like crowds, it might not be for you, but people dress up as men in black. People dress <laughs> up, up as the Mothman. There's just, tent after tent full of like mothman figures mothman documentary dvds oh, just cool. everything mothman of course there's the the huge silver mothman statue in the middle of town which is really right. cool you have to get a, a selfie with that no man look that's that that is pretty cool and uh again i guess it's a double-edged sword because you've got these people that immediately latch onto that and they attack and they say oh see it was all just a plan to to draw publicity and to get tourists to these towns and uh it's like when i just covered the Lonnie zamora case which is again it's one of the top tier ufo cases and that's generally what i've been doing the last couple seasons is i'll kick off the uh season with a big ufo case and it was the same thing they claimed the same thing about Lonnie zamora and socorro new mexico and uh i do i do laugh because um i'm i'm very fluent in sarcasm and one of the authors was saying, well, if that was the plan, um, they haven't done much because to this day, Socorro's basically just this small city, a uh, bit of a dust bowl. There is an area where you can go and they put up some picnic tables and they say you can go and sit there. And that's where the landing happened. But that's not even where it happened. It happened like a few hundred yards away. But there's no they don't have a festival like Roswell. They don't have a statue like the Mothman. They have just got some murals. So, uh, yeah, it. To me, that's always, you know, everybody, that's that's one of the biggest things. And I understand it's like, oh, they were just trying to get famous. But who got famous out of the uh, Mothman case? I mean, no one really. John Keogh, but he was already well known in these circles. And I would argue that he really got famous because of the, the movies coming out. Right, exactly. It's not like this. It's not like Point Pleasant has financially had a boom like it's still this small run downtown <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> i think the hotel's closed like the theater is in bad shape but they still have speakers there it's i mean it, it probably helps sustain the town but they're definitely not getting rich off of it yeah and like you say i mean that festival might boost numbers for like five days out of 365 and mm -hmm. everybody else it's just kind of people passing through and might take some selfies but like you say it's not like they have a toll booth at the river that says okay 50 bucks to come in <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And then moving on to uh, Gettysburg, I I need to get back there as an adult. I remember as always like a big thing as a kid. I grew up in central Pennsylvania, which was closer to Gettysburg. And, you know, it, it'd be like a educational vacation that you would take with your family just for the weekend. 
Um, but one funny story is I think I, I was probably like in first grade and my brother's four years older than I am. So he was a little more interested in ghosts than I was when we visited at that point when we were young. And, um, of course you, you don't want to take a, a ghost tour during the daytime. So we were sitting there having lunch and, um, my brother read something about a ghost tour and he was absolutely set going on this ghost tour. And my mom was like, what are we going to do for seven hours? Like, we're not going to that. <laughs> so he got all upset and he still holds that against her to this day. He's like, I'm scarred because you didn't take me on a ghost tour at, at Gettysburg. <laughs> so I need to go back and do it as an adult. Of course, I should take my brother because he would love that. But um, yeah, like you said, just tons of between 46,000 and 51,000 men were wounded, killed, or went missing during the three-day battle. And it's another one of those small towns. Like, it's really not a lot to look at except for ghost tours. And if you're really into, like, war history, um, there's some nice hotels. It's just, like, you know, a place you would take a little weekend trip. Yeah. Uh, and for me, when I was younger, I read a lot, and it was before the days of the Internet, so used to read uh believe it or not i used to read encyclopedias among other things and i kind of went through phases i mean i remember going through like a dinosaur phase and i definitely went through a civil war phase and because of where we were we were so far removed because we were in the pacific northwest you couldn't be further away in the u.s except for maybe alaska or hawaii mm -hmm. and be further removed from where civil war battles were fought i mean there was nothing the closest ones would have been like kind of texas maybe missouri which is still like 1500 2000 miles away so i was always interested and i really wanted to go to gettysburg and i wanted to go to some other uh, civil war battlefields when we traveled around but it was one of those things like you say as a kid same kind of thing you're like oh i really want to go but your parents are like what are we going to go and look at a big grass field with yeah. a couple of cannons <laughs> propped up in the corner. Yeah, like you say. But in your mind as a kid, you know, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to go and find musket balls and I'm going to find this and that. And uh, and another thing, folks, I think to remember here is that, I mean, war is horrific on any level. Don't get me wrong. But back then, especially, it wasn't like it is now where you see in the movies um, and somebody gets shot and they die five minutes later. I mean, most of the time back then, I think it was about 7 out of 10 soldiers who died in battle. They they didn't die from being instantly killed. They died from wounds and infection and everything else. So, again, if we're talking about the theory of misery basically leaves residual hauntings, think about all those you know poor young men slowly dying, being in and out of like fevers and not really understanding what's real and what's kind of fever dreams and that, and, and then dying eventually. I could definitely see why a site like that would have so many cases over the years. I've seen a few. I haven't really, again, it's not something I've delved into, but every once in a while I'll see a photo pop up in different investigations. And there's, look, in my mind, there's definitely something going on there. And in a lot of these uh, Civil War sites, and, and again, we won't go too far into it or we'll have a five-hour show. But yeah, it, again, it's just, I mean, it is definitely, like you say, Nate, it's, there might not be a whole lot to see unless you go, like, maybe during one of the reenactments or something. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure, like you say, with these uh, phone apps and everything else, I'm sure there will be people out there that will go and get some really good stuff, get some evidence or get some photos. Um, it, it, I, I guess it's just like anything. Like I say, the, the house that I lived in, 
where I'm convinced I live with the ghost or spirit, whatever you want to call it. I felt it very strongly. I heard him and everything else. And my stepdad thought it was crazy and he lived in the same house. So I guess it just comes down to who, how, how we're kind of calibrated to pick up on these things. And some people may see apparitions and some may just, again, might just think you're nuts. So, but uh, I've always been fascinated by a place like Gettysburg because to me, in in my mind, it's like, where would you expect to see ghosts more than where, like you say, where 46 to 49 people, 40,000 uh, young men died on, you know, mm-hmm. in the battlefield uh, anywhere else? I mean, even like Normandy, I know there's ghost stories in that. But uh, yeah, folks, sorry, I'm meandering a bit. So so we'll bring it back, uh, bring it back on to our subjects. But yeah, look, Nate, it's pretty fascinating. You You really get out to these sites, man, and it's pretty cool. Uh, I wish I would have done more of it when I was in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. And I want to invite anyone that's listening, if if you have any cool stories about Gettysburg or if you have any evidence, definitely get in touch with the Paranormal Sun and or myself, Nate Odd, and, and let us know and we'll we'll take a look at that evidence. Um, one thing I did want to bring up real quick is I know when we talked last time, I had said like I'd never really experienced a paranormal experience um and this kind of ties into what you're saying about our psyches and, and kind of being open to it i think the more i've gotten open to the idea of of ghosts and things like that i i think i've kind of opened myself up to it i was actually at the grand midway hotel which is in winburg pa and it was just this random old hotel that this guy from la moved to save from demolition and he was just cleaning up the house one day. It's three stories. It's like this big old hotel. And he noticed, you know, shuffling above him and walking. And there's a whole bunch of stories about it. Basically, there's this man who who went into the bottom bar and they were having a meat ration back in the day. So you couldn't buy like meat and they were selling meat on the black market per se. And he was actually clubbed to death because the policeman <laughs> came in to, to investigate and he stumbled into the back alley and was hit by a car. So that's one of the hauntings. And then also there is a, a woman It used to be a brothel. So they think she was, you know, a woman of the night working there. And she was actually just standing out on one of the balconies watching a fireworks show and um, shrapnel from one of the explosions came up and slit her throat, almost decapitating wow. her. And there's just, they, they say there are 10,000 people there watching that night. It's not that big of a town anymore, but back in the day it was. And they said that like the blame just, the blood just kind of rained down on the bystanders below. But, um, my point is we were doing a a ghost tour, more of a, a historic tour of the building. And we went into this place called the canopy room. So basically he's redecorated all the different hotel rooms into different themes it's really cool to see but the canopy room is like supposed to be the most evil and and uh haunted rooms and it's supposed to be the the room of the the lady who got cut in the throat um but we were just we went into this room and he was telling us about it and i felt something touch the back touch me in the back like on my shoulder blade right and i was standing in the back of the room my my boyfriend was right next to me. I turned to him. I was like, did you touch me? He was like, no. And I looked behind me and there's nothing behind me that could have possibly touched me. And so that I just want to share that was like my first real paranormal experience. I just had that last weekend. Well, um, look, 
like I say, man, as as time has gone on, a lot of these, again, I don't want to sound like I'm 85, but a lot of these kind of new, new, newer terms or new wave terms like empath, I never really knew what an empath was until fairly recently. But as you were telling that story, Nate, believe it or not, um, I was getting goosebumps. So uh, were you? Yeah, and and it's one of those things that I've personally found. I've I've just had to tell myself over time because when you're younger you just go oh well but over time uh if i go into a situation and i get that gut feeling to pay attention then i do and it's things like this like uh like you were you were telling that and i started getting goosebumps now what i've generally found that means is that uh, not that i wouldn't believe you anyway but uh, generally when i get those goosebumps it's that hey yeah this is correct um, this person is is spot on with what they're saying and uh have you, have you read much john keogh at all or no i haven't that's awesome that you you say that though and i appreciate that because i'm generally a, a no no bs type of guy like i i'm very to the book and about facts and things and that was something that's kind of like i i knew this happened like it wasn't just right. my brain playing playing tricks on me well, see the the reason I was asking if you if you've read much about John Keel is that the John Keel was one of the first people to at least put it in writing in a book that saying that all of these paranormal experiences are interconnected. So whether it's UFOs, whether it's ghosts, whether it's cryptids, whether it's uh, fairies or demons, it's all interconnected. And basically, what John Keel said is just what you were saying basically once you open the door to one phenomena you open the door to everything it the way that he likened it was it was similar to like if you're wearing a blindfold and you take off the blindfold and there's a blue shirt and a yellow shirt you don't only see the blue shirt obviously you're gonna see both shirts mm -hmm. and that's what he said was that once you start seeing or experiencing one of these things you'll start experiencing others. Now, me personally, for example, maybe I did when I was younger, but I cannot never remember seeing what you would call a UFO. I saw things in the night sky, but then you could very quickly work out. It was things like satellite. In fact, I've been quite interested as of late because, again, in some of these UFO groups and that, I've seen people saying, oh, what's this? What's this? And I look at it. I see the photo. I'm like, it's Starlink. Like I saw Starlink last year and it's very obvious to me what they're seeing because it's a train of lights and it's very but but again even these people are kind of like oh what what's this but see like i've never seen ufos but funnily enough the other night um and again one of those synchronicities when i had timmy on who does tarot and some other things we were talking about dreaming and and i said well i've i don't have a lot of kind of meaningful dreams in my life and since the day that i said that on the show i started having more and more odd dreams and i i'm, I'm not even kidding oh, wow. man this this is not like uh made up for this episode a couple nights ago i had a dream and i woke up and i very clearly remembered it i was outside looking at the stars because that's even though we live in the city here we don't have we're kind of on the fringe and we don't have massive light pollution I was outside looking at the stars, and sure enough, I started seeing these pinpoints of light kind of moving left to right. Le you know, they weren't just moving one direction. They were stopping hmm. and starting and everything else. And 
I can't honestly ever recall having a dream like that. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the dream of Gray's turning up in a UFO landing in my yard. It was just seeing these lights in the sky. And so I found it very interesting. I thought, wow, you know, it's just, again, it's just one of those things. And uh, yeah, so all I'm saying, Nate, is pay attention to see if you start having other memories like this, or sorry, other other experiences happen mm -hmm. kind of in other ways. Because like I say, me personally, from what I've heard, it's that once you start experiencing one thing, you may start experiencing other things. Maybe you'll hear a voice in the corner or something you'll you'll swear that you hear somebody speak to you i'm i'm one of those people i see like when i lived with with bob i never really like i didn't hear him talking or anything but i definitely would hear him like walking i mean i would be in the same room and i would hear the footsteps so i heard them upstairs as well from downstairs but what i'm saying is it wasn't just my imagination because someone clopping across a wooden floor is not like it, it's either you hear it or you don't it's not subtle so right um, it's not yeah. like it's just a mouse running around or something like that yeah exactly so to me uh, personally i'm convinced now i know there are lots of people out there that will say oh it's a familiar spirit or it's a demon or whatever and hey that's your opinion that's fine i'm convinced um all i'm saying is that yeah definitely i mean i i've been watching a documentary documentary series a friend put me onto as well on netflix called um surviving death and if you haven't seen that i've watched about the first three or four episodes and one of the things that they said and i i, I cued into it because i've see i've had two ndes and i've nearly died a few other times where my mom saved my life and they basically said on this that after people have had ndes they tend to start having more paranormal experiences. And because, I, I mean, I had my NDEs at such a young age, like the first one was around four or five, and then I had the other one at eight. I can't necessarily remember before that, you know what I'm saying? So I don't know if that's when the door opened to me personally. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not one of those people, um, like we most of us have seen that movie Beautiful Mind, and Russell Crowe's kind of walking along and they're asking him, oh, do you still see these things that are supposed to be figments of your imagination? And he looks to his right and he sees like five people. It's not like that for me. It's not like I see ghosts everywhere I go, but there are definitely places I go that I get that jibe. I get that feeling. And I'm like, there's something here. And generally I just kind of live and let live. And generally what happens is over time, um, I start hearing more or I start feeling more, yeah, but I don't go chasing them. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Um, no offense to anyone who does. It's just me personally. Hey, I just want to get on. I, I, I don't want any trouble. <laughs> yeah, and maybe like you said with your dream, maybe you'll maybe that's a foreshadowing of like you're going to see something soon. Um, maybe you'll meet some some friendly aliens or just you know see a a, a nice big UFO in the sky. That'd be really interesting. Yeah, man. It it, it was just really odd because I know that if you're from the outside looking in, you might say. Oh, well, JT, of course, look at what you cover. You're always covering UFOs. You're always watching UFO shows, but I'm 43, okay? And again, I never remember having a dream like this, and I've been doing this my... Basically, I've been involved in UFOs and reading about flying saucers and everything else since, like, as long as I can remember, at least the age of five and probably before that. So that's what I'm saying, folks, is it's not like I have these dreams every other week. It, I 
I've never had one like this that I can remember. I don't think I've ever had a dream with a UFO or seeing a fly, anything like that ever in my life. So, yeah, it, it was quite odd to me. Uh, but again, it's it's just one of those things. I mean, I, I had a dream uh, a while back that I covered on the program. It was really vivid that I saw the planets in the sky and they were really like large, like basically the size of a dinner plate. Like you could see them all outside. So again, it's just, I, I found it very interesting. And maybe like you say, Nate, maybe it's just one of those doors opening up. So I, I better get us into uh, some of the, <laughs> the, the meat and potatoes of the episode. So sorry, sorry for that, Nate. But every time you're on, oh, man, no, it's, it's just so fascinating. Yeah. So yeah, the, for sure. Let's head on to the, the first topic there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, folks, um, I don't want to keep Nate up all night because he's come on uh, quite late in the evening. He's got work in the morning. So the first one here we've got is uh, Hell's Hollow. So this is in the northwestern part of the state. So for those of you who don't remember, that's kind of like Lake Erie's up in the northwest and Ohio's that direction. So that's yep. the area of the state we're in. Okay, so aside from an occasional passing car in the distance, the sound of leaves underfoot or natural wind or wildlife noises, the area known as Hell's Hollow outside of Mercer is a generally quiet spot. But some say they can hear something else, the sound made by a restless spirit of an American Indian whose life might have come to a violent end. Normally known for the annual Hell's Hollow Haunt, Barn and Hayride, Halloween tradition, the area known as Hell's Hollow features only a few structures, such as an old iron mill from the early 1800s secluded in the woods, a barn from 1872 at the latest, and landmarks such as a waterfall known as Spirit Falls. Now, more on that in a little bit here. Though the pandemic canceled this year's attraction, Barbara Mills, whose family owns the property, said she has to wear headphones when decorating the area for Halloween. Usually when I decorate, I'd have headphones on to drown out the weird noises. Now, folks, that many weird noises, she's got to wear headphones. <laughs> Mills said it may be thumping or banging. It's something that's there, but you can't put your finger on what it is. The area has been referred to as Hell's Hollow since at least the 19th century. The 1888 History of Mercer County book even refers to the hollow as one of the principal physical features of what is today East Lackawannock Township, and it, and it details the incident which led to the hollow's name. The Mercer County area was first settled in the 1790s by veterans of the Revolutionary War, who were often paid in land for their service in the Continental Army. But those land grants displaced American Indians, including the Delaware and Seneca tribes, already living there. There were no major battles or skirmishes between the American Indians and European descendants like those seen out west almost a century later. One particular native named Harthagig was recorded as being disliked by both settlers and American Indians alike. Harthagig, the son-in-law of Petty, a local native chief, was prone to alcoholism which did not improve his reported personality flaws. He was ugly in physical appearance, and his disposition partook of the characteristics of his body, according to the historical record. So, folks, uh, it's like shallow how ugly on the outside and the inside. <laughs> Though Harthagig was regarded among the prominent hunters of the Seneca tribe who lived north of the Mount of Pimating Creek, an incident in the early 1800s secured his place in local folklore. Samuel Pugh, a boy who may have been about 10 years old at the time was warming himself by the fire when Harthagig, accompanied by two other American Indians, entered the home. Such visits were not uncommon, 
but Harthagig was reportedly drunk this time and grabbed Pew by the hair, held up a hunting knife, and threatened to scalp the boy. The record states, Along with the other American Indians, the Pew home had another visitor, a neighbor and hunter of long experience named James Jeffers, who is believed to have had relatives killed by American Indians during the French and Indian War and is recorded as being openly hostile towards them. Upon seeing Harthagig threaten Samuel Pugh, the other two American Indians and Jeffers disarmed Harthagig and threw him outside, the record states. So he was drunk, he turns up, he threatens to skin this boy, scalp him, and they basically do what many of us would do with friends. They take the knife off of him, throw him outside, and tell him to sober up. The next day, people recorded seeing Harthagig run past the Pew home and disappear into the woods, pursued by Jeffers, carrying a rifle. So obviously this guy isn't going to leave it alone. Jeffers asked Pew, who was working in the front yard, where Harthagig went. When Pew answered, Jeffers quickly followed the American Indian into the woods. Jeffers left the woods a few hours later with a pleased expression on his countenance, the record indicates, so he had a grin on his face basically, folks, and never said what happened in the woods. But Harthagig was never seen again. Though it is suspected that Harthagig was murdered, Filson says at that time period, someone disappearing did not always automatically indicate suspicions of foul play, which is true. There were a lot of ways to die back then, folks, and that's that's what they're saying is that he could have gotten attacked by an animal, he could have fallen down and broken his leg and, and died. There were a lot of things that could happen. Uh, and at some point before the War of 1812, sorry, folks, so Jeffers, so the guy who supposedly followed and maybe killed Harthagig, he left the area some point before the War of 1812. But a discovery nine years after the incident at the Pew House provided a cue to Harthagig's fate. While working near Yankee Ridge, interesting name, settler John Johnson saw a large skeleton tumble out of a tree. People believe the skeleton belongs to Harthagig. Despite being the son-in-law of the local chief, Harthagig's apparent murder did not cause offense to the Seneca tribe. The thing about sycamore trees is that they get soft in the center where people can hide things. So they've had cases like that where people would hide bodies or skeletons in the trees. That's interesting because I've never heard of this. Such incidents were not unheard of at the time. Another incident in the historical record said Jeffers was walking through the woods and encountered two American Indians. He killed them reportedly in self-defense. In another incident, in another instance, an American Indian named Flynn drunkenly killed his wife and was himself later killed in retaliation. So there were multiple murders in the area, basically, folks, is what they're saying. However, the death of Harthagig seemed to have a lasting effect on the area in which he was killed. The historical record mentions what might have been supernatural activity in Hell's Hollow in the years following Harthagig's death. Harthagig's spirit, troubled and restive, has been unable to find peace in its happy hunting grounds, but returns each night to the scene of its taking off, where, in storm and tempest, its deep groans and wailing lamentations sound loud above the echo of the howling winds, according to History of Mercer County. Much has changed in the last 200 years. The Pew's home location is now occupied by an apartment complex. However, there is still plenty of historical remnants in the area to indicate that life was like, such as the old iron mill or the foundations where a rider's wheel was once located. Barbara's brother, Bob Mills, says there's a lot of history in the area. Spirit Falls in the area was named after many folks reportedly heard noises, moans, groans, laughter, and screams coming from the falls. 
His uneasy spirit flits about and makes hideous noises, even heard above the howling winds, as he cannot rest and returns nightly to haunt the scene of the crime. So, there, folks, we not only have an area named Hell's Hollow, but after this supposed incident, you know, where this guy was supposedly murdered, they named this waterfall Hell's, Hell's, or sorry, Spirit Falls, because they say that he still haunts the area. So, this is quite an interesting one, Nate. It's got a few layers to it. Yeah, for sure. And this is one that I kind of stumbled upon. I was, when it first started off for my Instagram, I was just Googling haunted places and again this is one of the the ones that came up and it's actually a golf course right now and there's also you can just go up and take a walking tour and also an atv tour so it was when i was laid off and i just went up on like a random weekday and i paid four dollars i think to go on this tour it's a self-guided tour but basically you just walk all throughout hell's hollow they have like um different markers and different things that you can see and like you said that with the the hearth gig skeleton it was found on the ground nine years after his disappearance and that's one of the things they really hype up during the october month whenever they do the the fright farm and they do like the that they dress it up for a haunted house essentially um but the other interesting thing is that there's actually a stone house along the trail that that you're supposed to see the figure of a woman in as well there's actually I have a picture on my post. Um, there's actually a sign that's stapled to the tree, and it says, Hell's Hollow Farm, 1824. The stone house was built by Josiah and Thomas Dixon in 1824 on property acquired by the Donation Land Act. And stones were hauled from hand from the waterfall just north wow. of here, from Spirit Halls that you're just, falls that you're just talking about. Um, at that time, labor for the, for the four-room house cost a grand total of $40. In 1851, the farm was purchased by Eliza Stranahan and her family who resided in Philadelphia. So that's across the state. The state, of course, it's a big city in Pennsylvania. Um, They're originally from a small town in Northern Ireland and felt that Philadelphia was no place to raise children. So they actually relocated and settled in Hell's Hollow at the Stone House um, for over 100 years. And it says sometimes you can catch a glimpse of Eliza peering out the East Room window where she died at the ripe age of 100 in 1901. So I didn't see her figure, but of course it's something interesting if you happen to take this walking tour or ride an ATV by this old stone house, you might see her peering out the window. Well, and it's very interesting to me because obviously if they got the stones from Spirit Falls, they got it after Harthigig died and after, you know, Mm -hmm. he was supposedly murdered and since folks said that they heard him in the falls and everything else. So, again, look, all I'm saying is that if you would personally, if you would think that he somehow introduced paranormal activity into this area, I I do find it quite interesting that they moved these stones, built this house, and now this house is supposedly haunted by uh, this lady as well. So it's almost as if he imbued some kind of energy into the area and now that they built this home out of the stones from Spirit Falls, then you turn around and see her her ghost. So, look, as far as I'm concerned, it's just got all I'm saying is this has got a bit more legs than some of the stories that you hear. It's like, well, why does this person haunt this house or whatever? Oh, because they're a ghost. It's like, yeah, well, we get that. <laughs> but, but there's actually some tie in between these two uh, different areas, which is very interesting. 
Yeah, exactly. I, and I encourage anyone to head up to, to take the tour. It's, it's really odd. Like when you're walking around because there's just like props from when they do their haunted <laughs> tour. There's like a random gas, old gas station and tire repair shop. It's like some metal and like an old truck in there. It really, it's like around like a lake too. So it looks like a scene from Friday the 13th. It's just wow. really interesting stuff to see when you go up there. So, uh, out of curiosity, when you did this tour, uh, so you had on headphones? I think so. I think I was yeah. listening to music. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. I thought it was like one of those guided tours you met where they, you, you, like, basically they, they guide you through with audio. But, um, oh, no. This is just like a self guided tour. You walk and then there's signs at the different, oh, okay. uh, the different places to tell you about the area. No, I was just curious because I was thinking to myself, that's kind of a cool uh, marketing gimmick because then you can say, well, if no one hears these voices and sounds like the lady said she is, you go, well, of course not, because you're on the tour. You know, you're not going to hear it. Is it? <laughs> so that, that was why I was just kind of curious. So the next one we've got here, folks, is another road. Uh, yes, I know. Uh, it's one of those things where around the world, it roads and stretches of different roads just seem to be a conduit for a lot of these different uh paranormal activities you hear about i mean i found i mentioned several in the state of illinois and again here in pennsylvania we've already covered over a few but this one is the blue mist road which is close to pittsburgh so this is very close to uh where nate is living and uh this one says deep within pittsburgh's north park stands Irwin road aka blue mist road where on most nights you will find a deep blue mist that covers the path. Now, I've always found that a bit creepy because that's straight out of the uh, horror movies. Uh, mm -hmm. The old, uh, in my mind, I always think of Transylvania and the fog, you know, coming over the trail in Dracula or uh, Frankenstein, something like that. <laughs> the road is full of local legends and is the perfect spot for some late night frights. From witches to ghosts, much of the road's history remains unknown. To some, the road is known as Blue Mist Road, for it holds many mysteries behind it. That's a good pun, whoever wrote that. <laughs> Irwin Road was originally a dirt trail that was created in the early 1800s, and oftentimes, especially in the eastern U.S., that's the case. As time went on, the legends grew, but the road did not. Even today, a five-mile stretch of the road has never been paved. Along this dirt trail stands huge trees and some old foundations where homes used to exist. Many say that one of the homes belonged to an old lady who practiced black magic. The woman who was considered by locals to be a witch would open portals to dark dimensions on a daily basis, filling the land with dread and evil. It would explain the stories still to come. The remaining homes were filled with a variety of families who suffered in varying ways. One family was said to be of short stature, sounds like my family, suffering from <laughs> dwarfism. The father of the family had a shotgun, which he filled with rock salt to be shot at tres trespassers or late-night adventurers. Another family had a father who suffered from severe depression. One night after being laid off from his job, the father came home and murdered his whole family. He then dumped the bodies in the septic tank to hide the evidence. Years later, when the house was destroyed and the tank removed, their bones were discovered. Eventually, in around 1915, rumors say the KKK became attracted to the area likely due to the area's horrific past in secluded woods. And again, folks, we've I've covered this over in the last episode, but most of the claims of the KKK in the in the area 
in Pennsylvania is much more the boogeyman. Just like you always hear about Satanists being involved in everything. They used the woods for rituals, including lynching various people of religious beliefs and in the ethnic background on the trees. It's a good scary tale, but it lacks the ring of truth. Given the strong century-long abolitionist tradition in the Commonwealth, it seems unlikely that a group like the Klan would have established a stronghold here. So, not saying that these things couldn't have happened, folks, but it's not like the Klan would have been having a base somewhere where there was so such a strong anti-slavery and anti-racist type views as Pennsylvania held. Besides, the tree that's most often associated with this tale seems to be singularly unsuited to the task. It has no strong, low-hanging limbs to throw a rope over. Yet the spirits of the deceased never left the road and have haunted it ever since. According to legend, a visitor must drive up the dirt part of the road, which is blocked off. They must honk their horn three times to summon the spirits of the dead, who will make noises, appear as balls of light, or materialize as full apparitions. Further within the woods lies an old cemetery with gravestones dating back to the early 1700s. Many are very hard to read. Yet there are two of them that have captured the hearts of the locals. Two of the stones, which can't be made out, so you can't read whose gravestones they are, are leaning towards each other, separated by an inch or two. These are believed to be the graves of a couple that was deeply in love, only to be torn apart and killed by disease. Even in death their love could not be broken, and the graves lean towards each other as a sign of their affection. On nights of the full moon the graves come together and touch as the ghosts of the lovers dance around their graves. One group of ghost hunters even claim to have heard the faint beating of an Indian drum as they snap pictures on the empty road. When they looked at the photos, they discovered an angry face on the images. So another one, folks, that's got a little bit of everything and seems to be a very interesting place. So, Nate, what do you know about Blue Mist Road? Yeah, Blue Mist Road is one of those ones that you can find really in all the books about haunted Pennsylvania. It's, it's definitely got some legs. So it's it's actually about only 10 miles from me, so I go there a lot. Um, it's actually, North Park is, it's kind of a, a yuppie area, like uppity. Like there's, it's crazy because there's these McMansions all around and then you're driving down Irwin Road and literally you see this gate and it's just now, it's part of this road that was never paved, like you said. It's just so strange to see this in the middle of a, a, a well-established <laughs> area. And um, now it's just a walking trail. Like, people will use it to, to run, and it's definitely um, less less traveled than the main trails of North Park, probably because of its spooky nature. But the first time I went up there, I actually went. I wasn't brave enough to walk down the road because the sun was setting. Fair enough. Um, yeah, and, and I actually honked my horn. I did the three times, and I, I recorded it on one of my Instagram stories and I, di I didn't hear anything. Um, but it was just kind of this, one of those things that you have to try and it just kind of gives you chills. Um, but I've gone back and I actually found, so like when you walk down this road there, you can tell that people used to live here, but it was a long time ago. Like there's still telephone poles, there's still light oh, poles yeah. and it's just this dirt road. And there's, actually spots where it looks like there were roads that went off of it and there's this one part where it actually goes over a stream and you can tell it's a road it's all collapsed now you can't drive over it but i walked up there and that's actually where i found the foundation of what they call the witch's house they think that's 
where that that witch resided that did the the magic there and another weird thing is i'm friends with a paranormal group in pittsburgh called bump in the night society and they actually did some heavy research like they contacted the local authorities and like the 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 boards and everything the zoning boards and everything like that and they asked what is this road that goes off of blue mist road or Irwin road right. is its official name and they had no documents of it wow. like this road doesn't exist that, that shoots <laughs> off of it but you can tell you can tell it was a road and there's a, a house foundation up there it's just creepy um and when you walk by people actually leave notes and like one says we found the witch house probably possessed and the septic tank and i think the septic i never found the septic tank but i guess that's where the the bodies were hid for the the short people right um and another says is it true that someone was hung at the tree to the far left and i guess that's the tree that they were talking about but obviously that adds a spooky nature to the oh, the course. road as well when you're just taking a hike and then you see these post-its on a oh, board yeah. talking yeah. about it another thing that i experienced is the the pounding like the okay. noises in the woods and like you'll just be walking down the road every time i've gone here i've heard it I've, you'll just be walking down the road and you hear this like drumming almost like it it could be like shots from like a shotgun but it's consistent like it's always going off and this is a park like this is a park where people go like to to run and walk and stuff and i don't think there's really hunting right in this area that i know of and it's just this consistent like noise that's always going off right. like when i'm walking down the road well um many moons ago i i grew up in the forest actually you know um completely like i say other side of the country but i've always been i wouldn't say at ease in the forest because even as a boy um, again, I don't know if it was that gut feeling or what, but there were times I definitely felt freaked out in different areas of forest, but it is one of those things definitely where I, maybe if you lived in that area and you were out in the forest all the time and you heard that sound, like you say, maybe you would know what it was. For example, for us, one of the noises you would hear something like that, not exactly the same, but kind of similar. You, you kind of hear a rhythmic noise on, off, on, off, and it would be woodpeckers, but Again, okay. if, if you didn't know that and you weren't from the area, I mean, I would have had no idea. And again, I, I don't know what this sound is, but mm -hmm. I do find it very interesting. And one thing now, I'm fortunate I've never been uh, blasted with one, but I've had friends that have been shot with uh, with shotguns uh, with, with rock salt in them or with birdshot for being in places they shouldn't be. So I did. That doesn't sound fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, the thing that to me was interesting is that just adds a little bit of authenticity because they're not saying, Oh, this, you know, this guy would go out and murder anyone that came on that. He's like, no, they go and scare them away with, with, uh, shotgun shells full of, uh, rock salt. And I thought, you know, that's, that's a cool little twist It like I say, it's not the typical, they'll kill you, you know, or they'll abduct you or some of these other stories that we hear that guys in white vans, unmarked vans are going to abduct you. It's just, <laughs> no, they're going to tell you to get the hell out of there. So yeah, interesting little twist, I thought. And again, it's... It's just one of those things um, as well. For me, sitting here on the other side of the world, this is all quite exotic. And what I mean is, I think I went through Pennsylvania when I was young, but it's not like I really know the area. So uh, now in the day of the Internet, I could sit there and, and see some of these photos and that and get a good idea of what things look like. But like when I covered the Hoya Bachu Forest in Romania, which is rumored 
that's kind of the nickname it's got is it's the most haunted forest in the world. But the thing that's interesting about that forest is it's very close to a major city. So when I say major city, uh, 300,000 people. And although there are plenty of stories of paranormal going on, there are thousands of people that kind of walk and and hike and camp and everything else in this forest and and see nothing, have no experiences. So again, it's it's just one of those things where now something like this, like you say, it, it doesn't seem to be quite as a uh, kind of a uh, weekend trip as much as, let's say, like uh, Hell's Hollow, where it's very mm-hmm. close to Pittsburgh, like you say, and a lot of people are going out there. But uh, I do find it quite interesting how you can have areas like this. And depending on the person and the time of day and everything else, some people like you, you know, for example, you heard these sounds. And I'm sure there are hundreds of people who have been out there and went, oh, there's nothing to it because they didn't personally experience it. But um, as I say often on the show, as I, when I talk about UFOs, do I think every UFO people see is a UFO? No. In fact, I think it's maybe 2 to 5% of things that people see in the sky are other. So not a satellite, not a, a normal commercial plane, etc. But it only takes one. And just like this, it only takes one or two people having these experiences in my mind to show that maybe there's something more to it. So really interesting, man. Yeah, definitely. And like like you said, um, you just kind of have to be open to it. You you have to do your due diligence and be factual and yeah. be level headed and not be like, oh, my God, everything is <laughs> is a haunted place. Yeah. But if you're open to it, I, I think, you know, you can kind of experience these things in these haunted locations, which is really neat. No, definitely. And, uh, and, and like you say, one of the things that's cool to me, folks, is it's not like there's nothing wrong with going to Disneyland or Six Flags. But one of the cool things about this is even if you go out there and even if you don't experience anything odd or paranormal, you're still out in nature and you're out in a gorgeous place. So, I mean, even if, like I say, even if you don't necessarily see what you went there to see, it's not like you're in some industrial park or something, you know, you're out somewhere beautiful. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the cool things about so many of these stories from Pennsylvania, man. So many of them are out in nature. And I think it's I think it's great in this day and age with urban exploration and with a lot of what's been going on that people are getting back out there and and going and seeing these places that have been abandoned for, you know, some of them a hundred years or, or more. So yeah, it's pretty cool. All right. Um, the next one we've got here, folks, this is a really sad tale. And as I said, I went into this pretty blind. A few of these I'd heard a good bit about, but most of them, it was very much, oh, this title looks interesting. So I'll get some info on it. And this one is kind of, it, it's not exactly the same as The Murder Swamp, but it is a very sad tale. And this is the story of the lost children of the Alleghenies. Now, when I heard about this, folks, I thought maybe this was like uh, a family of people who had gone, uh, become hermits out in the woods or something. I didn't know quite what to expect. And this comes from Pavia Township, which is in south central Pennsylvania. So in the mid-19th century, two young boys wandered from their homes in Pavia, Pennsylvania, never to be seen alive again. The origin story behind this haunted hike goes all the way back to April the 24th, 1856. So that's like 170 years ago, folks, at a farm just west of Claysburg. Two young boys, George and Joseph, ages seven and five, took off into the woods to follow their father. According to the legend, the boys started to panic as the sky grew dark and it became impossible to see. 
the community and other local hunters and trappers started a search. Bob's Creek was flowing fast nearby, and it seemed there were, there were no chance for the young boys to survive if they attempted to cross it. The search stayed on the east side of the creek and lasted for almost two weeks. Legend says the community even brought in a witch to help with the search. Others say that the witch's arrival helped to haunt the, these creepy woods. As the search continued, a farmer named Jacob Dybert, that lived a dozen miles away, woke up suddenly after a strange dream. In his dream, Jacob was searching in the woods for a deer carcass and found a child's shoe before coming to a small stream and a ravine. A fallen tree allowed him to cross to the other side where he found George and Joseph under the roots of a tree. Jacob kept the eerie dream to himself, only recalling the details to his wife. However, the dream continued to haunt him, repeating several more times every time he managed to close his eyes. He told his brother-in-law, who thought he knew of the place Jacob was seeing in his dreams. The two set out and elements of Jacob's dream started coming to life. The dead deer, a child's shoe, a tree that allowed them to cross the ravine, and the two boys dead at the roots of the tree. In 1906, to mark the mysterious tragedy's 50th anniversary, the community raised money to create a monument to the lost boys. In 1910, they had finally raised enough funds, and a monument was erected to the site where the boys' bodies were found. In recent years, visitors have started leaving kids' toys at the monument. The boys probably wouldn't have had much use for snow globes, toy cars, and stuffed animals in 1856, but it really serves to accentuate the tragedy and and it breaks your heart when you visit. On May the 8th, this is where they found the boys, huddled together, most likely succumbed to hypothermia. Fifty years later, they built this memorial, the memorial sign says. To add to all of this, Sidney Griffith of Pavia supposedly also got lost in the same woods in 1887 and is said to still walk the woods today. So, yeah, folks, that's another one of those that is just, you don't know quite what you're getting into, and it ends up being this tragedy. And I know it's easy for us to look back in modern times and go, oh, well, why would you let kids wander around in the woods? Well, I'll tell you this, folks. In the 80s, I was wandering around in the woods, and we <laughs> didn't think much about it. I mean, we had mountain lions and bears and all that, but you generally carried an eye for something, and you didn't go too far from home. So all I'm saying is, you know, don't judge too harshly on the parents. And back then was a different time. Kids didn't have a lot to do, so they went to follow their father, and unfortunately, they both passed away. So... Yeah, that's a bit of a heartbreaking tale, that one, Nate. It definitely is. It's it's a tragic story. And I just want to say, number one, the top of the story and, and hearing it, I think Jacob is shady as hell because, <laughs> <laughs> sure, he had a dream where he magically saw exactly where these two young children were laying dead. I think he definitely had something to do with it, but they probably could improve that back in the day. Right. What's interesting is... American folk singer Alison Cross actually has oh, okay. a song titled Jacob's Dream. Wow. So we, you should, yeah, go listen to it after this on YouTube. It, it retells the whole story. It's really interesting. And that's, she's a big singer. Oh, yeah. So that was cool that, you know, ties to, to small town Pennsylvania. But, uh, we actually went out to the monument. It's just something, you know, in, in weird Pennsylvania that you stop by to see. And we went in the winter. Like it was, it was weird because in, in Pittsburgh, it was like a, a really warm winter's day. It was like, I think, 50 degrees. There was no snow on the ground, nothing. And then we drive out to Pavia, Pennsylvania, and this road 
wasn't taking it's not like taken care of in the the winter time it's not right. like a big public access road so it was completely iced over and i couldn't get my car down there um so we actually ended up hiking down this icy road into the woods of where this tragedy happened and the monument actually sits right where the children like i guess where the tree was before that the children's bodies were found wow. um, there's a couple different sides to it one side says the lost children of the alleghenies were found here May 8th, 1856 by Jacob Dillard, Dibert and Harrison Wysong. And then the other side of it says, um, wandered from home April, 1856. So, and then there's that sign as well that kind of tells the story. It actually has a picture of Jacob, Dil Jacob Dibert on it. Um, but it's really interesting. Like you said, they had brought in a witch and there's just all these different, like weird, kind of things that were brought into the story of the disappearing children, even though it was a tragic thing. It's, it's something interesting to still visit. Um, you kind of get like an eerie feeling because it's in the middle of the woods. And of course the, the monument and people actually come there to this day and they leave toys for the children. So I have a picture. There's actually, it was around Valentine's day. So there's like a little Valentine's monster bear and he's wearing a, a, a COVID mask and there's like flowers and people actually make, um, crosses or crucifixes out of wood and they tie it and put wow. it on the fence around around this monument something else interesting is we got out the the ghost app of course to see if the children wanted to talk to us when we yeah. were there um we were asking them like do you want to tell us who killed you do you want to let us know what happened um are you sad like are you happy nothing like went off until we were about to leave and one single word came up on the ghost app and it was Brad. And Brad is the name of my dad. Wow. Which I thought was really weird. Yeah. So like maybe these kids were trying to say like, we know like what it's like. We, you know, we miss our dad or this is your dad and we know he's your dad. So it was just kind of like a weird coincidence. Well, and, and again, man, you know, this happened 170 years ago, just about. So there could have been someone else very close closely related to the case whether it was a family member of theirs or a friend of theirs and we mm -hmm. would never know um the thing that i find interesting see it, like I, I was watching that show i was telling you about and i was watching about on mediums and all i much to vi's annoyance i often provide running commentary on just about anything we're watching right so <laughs> i'm <always laughs> giving commentary but one of the things and, and again i'm not saying that mediumship is impossible but I'm more skeptical of it than I am a lot of other things because, in general, mediums make money from what they do. So I'm always going to be more skeptical about that versus someone who has a strange encounter and just tells their story and doesn't really gain from it. Right. Well, as I said, Devai, you know, when you kind of get into cold reading, especially if you look at quote unquote white or Caucasian or European person, if you're going to start guessing names, you're probably going to start with a lot of kind of biblical names because they're very common. So my first name is very common. Uh, names like Jacob and, and those kind of names are all very common. So I find it quite interesting as well, as you say, that the name Brad came up because you could say it's a semi-common name, but, I, you know, it's not like top 10, not like Michael or so. So I do find that really right. interesting, man. Yeah, I don't think like a, if even if people were programming this app to like, say words that they they think people would get a shock value out of like brad's not one of them so it yeah. was just something really weird that happened yeah 
Now, what would have really impressed me was if it um, if the app said Terry Bradshaw, and then I'd be like, <laughs> how far is that fella getting around? You know, how how far right. is that engineer wandering around out in the woods? You know, he's a big Steeler fan, obviously. <laughs> but um, but yeah, no, look, like like I say, I'm always interested about things like that when when you start doing the balance of probability. I'm not saying it's impossible, uh, like with mediums that they might hoax something like that, but it's certainly more believable to me when you don't get the just the super common names like Mary or uh, Stephanie or, you know, when you start getting those kind of second tier names, then you start going, okay, that's, that's very interesting. So that's, that's a pretty cool tie in, man. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, no problem. Definitely. Now the next one we've got here, folks is about a library, but this is a library with a very interesting past. Now, for those of you who don't know, Andrew Carnegie was one of the richest men in not only American, but world history. This is the guy who founded U.S. Steel. He was a multi-multi-millionaire at the time. I mean, he would, I do believe from memory that he'd be worth more than Bill Gates, you know, at his top and Jeff Bezos back in the early 1900s, late 1800s. And Andrew Carnegie was originally from Scotland. Now, Andrew Carnegie was very big on giving back to people and philanthropy. The reason that I bring this up before we get really into the article is, all over the world, there are what are called Carnegie Free Libraries, where Andrew Carnegie basically sponsored to build these libraries. And the reason that I wanted to bring that up is there are two really cool libraries, one that I didn't get to go in, but I've driven past, in all places, folks, Suva, Fiji, which is out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And there's another Carnegie Free Library in the borough of Auckland that I used to live in, which used to be a standalone town called uh, Onehunga. And I've actually eaten breakfast in that library because it's now a converted cafe. And oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I just found it quite interesting. Of course, I knew when we got into Pennsylvania, probably hear about Carnegie, but all I'm saying, folks, is that this was a guy who definitely put his money where his mouth was, so to speak, and he encouraged other people to give away as well. He encouraged people like uh, Rockefeller and many of his contemporaries, um, Vanderbilt. He 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 tried to make it kind of like a publicity race with them to get them to uh, definitely give away and spark things like learning. And he also he gave a lot of money to grants for people you know who were gifted but didn't have the money to do things like yeah uh, you know, obviously Carnegie Hall. And all these different things. So I just wanted to give you folks a little bit of a background who might have heard of the name Carnegie and not known who he was. So the I Carnegie, didn't know that it was that big, like yeah. all across the the country, or not even the country, the world. <laughs> yeah, um, off the top of my head, I know it was over a hundred. I know he sponsored over a hundred free libraries in his life, which is insane. I mean, you think about that. Uh, it's like building a hundred free schools around the world. I mean, at the time, these were really state-of-the-art, you know, kind of libraries. And you can tell the Carnegie Free Libraries, Nate, anywhere in the world because they've got the uh, they've got facades of the columns, like the Greek or Roman columns in the mm -hmm. front. So when I saw the one in Onehunga, I, I didn't really know, but I thought, oh, that looks familiar. And that was it. Sure, it was a Carnegie Free Library. It was built in the late 1800s, I want to say. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, and, and again, I mean, the, this is one of those people where there were lots of people who questioned the way he got rich uh, because he was anti-worker, uh, anti-union a lot of times. But, I mean, that's, let's be honest, that's how most billionaires get to be billionaires. But the thing was that he definitely later on in life 
did his utmost to kind of give back to the community. So I can really respect that. Um, I think that most people are kind of complex creatures and I think it's hard to sum up and say, you good, you bad. Uh, I do find, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, he spent the last, basically when he retired from us steel, he spent the last 20 or 30 years of his life giving back to people all over the world. And again, at that time, I, like you say, I find it interesting that it wasn't just, well, I'll look after the U S but I'm not going to worry about other countries. So, um, so this particular library we're talking about was built over the site of the former Connell Graveyard, and rumors persist that some bodies remain under the site of the library, and it may be haunted. Newspaper accounts from the turn of the last century, so that's from the 1800s into the 1900s, folks, recount objections from some of the relatives about exhuming and moving their deceased relatives' remains. Rumors persist today that many of the bodies still remain buried on the library property, and thus the library has been rumored to be haunted. The apparitions of a man and a woman have been sighted together. There has also been sightings of an elderly lady in a babushka seen through the window. Library director Julia Allen said she heard what she believes were foots, footprints upstairs, sorry, footsteps, when no one else was in the building. She said this incident occurred about 30 years ago, and other employees have also reported hearing strange sounds, and one saw a person on a landing after hours. Malone said paranormal groups have contacted the library about visiting and possibly holding an event. Malone said the baseball players were inspired by this history and, in addition to providing scares, will share spooky tidbits of Connellsville history, including a triple-axe murder that took place in 1932 on the North End. That's freaky as well. It was never <laughs> solved, so there's, there's another unsolved triple-axe murder. Wow. Ten years later, an axe was found in, in the Yo River. It's not known if it was the murder weapon. Thirty or more years ago, a man was throwing a beer can at St. Rita's Cemetery and was struck by and killed by lightning. This place is haunted. There's no doubt in my mind it's tremendously haunted, said Sean County, the founder, sorry, Sean Kelly, the founder and lead spiritual investigator of the Pittsburgh Paranormal Society. So, folks, obviously this is very close to Hell's Hollow that we mentioned before because the Yo River is involved. And that's why I had that there is that there's this other tie in with them finding this axe in the Yo River. But yeah, yet another haunted library. It seems to be a pattern, uh, not only in Pennsylvania, but all over, Nate. Yeah, for sure. And and Carnegie is such a big name. It just kind of resonates, I think, with people. And I need to go back there and like take a picture and stuff and post about it. But I'll, my really my my only tie into this is I was reading online. Um, it's haunted by apparitions of steelworkers, which makes sense because Steel City is, is the nickname of Pittsburgh and we were built upon steelworkers, um, along with shadowy figures of unexplained female and male voices. Books are also known to fly off the shelves on their own at the library. Um, the only time I've actually been there physically is I went, it's a music hall now too, as well. Okay. And they, they host like small concerts. So I actually went to see Todrick Hall. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. He no. was on like American Idol and now he does like, uh, he's famous for doing YouTube videos and stuff like okay. that. But he kind of recreated a, a Wizard of Oz universe and he had a concert there. So okay. I was, I was there for that. And I, I don't remember seeing any ghosts, but I'll have to make a trip back. <laughs> <laughs> you might have to check if there's empty seats when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you leave, go, I'm pretty sure there was someone sitting there. Um, Right. <laughs> yeah, and and my understanding was when I when I read uh I didn't have it in the notes here, but 
my understanding was why they had to basically build the library on the site of the cemetery was that Carnegie had very specific. It was one of those deals. It's like, I'll give you the grant to build it, but it must meet these criteria. And one of the criteria was that it had to be within two blocks of the school and something else. And that makes sense because you don't want school kids walking five miles to get to the library and back. Mm -hmm. And the only plot of land that they had that the city could actually build it on was the cemetery. So they had to move these bodies. So it wasn't, you know, some grand plan of the city fathers to basically create a haunted library. It was that that was the only, you know, they were being quite pragmatic. It was like, well, we can move the bodies, but we can't move the library. So we need to uh, basically take this piece of land uh, using public domain and then put the library there. So, yeah, another <laughs> I just find it interesting, man, how many haunted libraries we've we've come across. And like I say, uh, in the state of Illinois, there were several. I remember there were some that I did a bit of research and there wasn't a whole lot. So I didn't cover them. And then there were some that made it into the show. But from memory, there were at least easily five haunted libraries in Illinois as well. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I think I was I was just thinking, like, I think we've heard the story as the basis of the movie Poultrygeist, like when they build, you know, the house yeah. over the Indian burial ground. It's it's kind of like that. And it's just that story that lives on. Oh, don't don't get me started on that, man. That's that's the first movie I can remember that, like, literally scared me. Like I was uh, probably five or six and my sisters were going to watch it and. My mom basically said, my mom was very pragmatic. She said, you can watch it, but if you're scared, that's your problem. Like, don't you know, <laughs> come crying to me. And of course, I watched it in that pool scene where the ghosts are coming out of the pool. Like, that just freaked me out for weeks. I couldn't sleep for weeks properly. And it was before I went to school. So, you know, I was still home. And that scene and then the scene with the TV, obviously, because back then, growing up, that's after 12 o'clock, folks. Um. I know uh, many of the listeners will have only known TV being on 24-7, but back then, uh, around 12 o'clock at night or maybe 1 a.m., they would play the national anthem, and then the channels would go off air until 5 or 6 in the morning. So, um, yeah. The, you those, get that white static. Yeah, yeah, and it used to freak, freak you out, out. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and it did for a long time. I mean, the first two movies that really scared scared me, scared me, were that uh, Frankenstein, the original Frankenstein, and then oh, I used to always think I was seeing him in the window in my bedroom because it was quite a high window, and, you know, he's quite tall in the movie. So, um, you know, I kept thinking I was seeing him. And then uh, the other one, believe it or not, was Close Encounters because, again, I just saw these scary-looking creatures, and uh, you, you see the things from, from the movie, I guess, basically, you've got no control over what happens, and I, that's probably what scared me so much. Yeah, now as a, as adults, I think that's probably why we're so interested in this stuff is because that's what scared us as a kid. So now you're, you've always got that, like, it's like an adrenaline rush in the back of your head. You're like, this is what scared me and I want to get to the bottom of it. And well, that's why, you know, you look into those type of things. Oh, look, man, look, I, I fully agree. Um, this Halloween, having the time off and, uh, I went back and watched all of the Frankenstein movies, like all of the original universal ones, like, the first five or six, whatever it was, I went and watched all of those again. So, yeah, look, uh, to this day, nearly 40 years later, I've definitely got that. That was always my favorite uh, universal monster was Frankenstein. And, um, yeah, uh, like you say, yeah, I, I would fully agree with that. 
And again, you've got Poltergeist, which is obviously paranormal, and you've got Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And what am I doing uh, all these years later? <laughs> I'm doing a show about this stuff. So, yeah. Exactly. Now, the next one, folks, is unique to Pennsylvania. Um, out of all the other stories that you'll hear, this one is unique, and it's always cool when it's not super well-known, but it's one of those stories that is really cool. It's got an awesome backstory, and it is basically Pennsylvania only. It's kind of like the Jersey Devil of Pennsylvania, but not quite. What I mean by that is only find it in Pennsylvania, and it's so unique and out there. I don't think you'll ever hear about it anywhere else. And this cool story is about the squonk. And the squonk is purported to live in northern Pennsylvania. The squonk, reportedly the homeliest of all living things in Pennsylvania, obviously is a creature of myth and legend. The squonk is reputed to live in the hemlock forests of northern Pennsylvania. Legends of squonks probably originated in the late 19th century, at the height of Pennsylvania's importance in the timber industry. The earliest known written account of squonks comes from a book by William T. Cox called Fearsome, Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods with a Few Desert and Mountain Beasts, and that book was from 1910. Cox's account is reprinted in George Lucas or sorry, George Lewis Borges' Book of Imaginary Beings from 1969. Here's how Cox reported in his book on the animal, which he gave the scientific name of Lacrimacropus dissolvens. Spellings and punctuation are as Cox penned them. So dissolvens is quite fitting, and you'll see why. Probably the homeliest animal in the world as and knows it. The distribution was once fairly wide the usual habitat being high plains where desert vegetation was abundant. History shows beyond dispute that, as these, great gradual, gradual, as these areas gradually changed to swampy, lake-dotted country, the squonk was forced to take to the water. Of distinctively low mentality, it traveled constantly around the unaccustomed marshes in search for fodder. With time, it developed webbing between its toes, but only on the submerged left feet. Hence, on entering the water, it could swim only in circles and never got back to shore. Fossil bones dredged from these lakes bottoms revealed that thousands perished of starvation in this manner. Today, the squonk is met with solely is met with solely in the hemlock forests of Pennsylvania. It is a most retiring, bashful, crep crepuscular animal, garbed in a loose, warty, singularly ill-fitting skin. So think of similar to like a hippopotamus, folks, but with really baggy skin like a uh, one of those uh, cats from Egypt, the hairless cats. The squonk is always unhappy, even morbid. He is given to constant weeping over his really un upsetting appearance and can sometimes be tracked by his tear-stained trail. Moonlight nights are best for squonk hunts, but then the animal prefers to lie quiet in its hemlock home, fearing should it venture forth, that it may catch a glimpse of itself in some moonlit pool. Sometimes you can hear one weeping softly to himself. The sound is a low note of pleading, somewhat resembling the call of the cross-feathered snee. So it's a bit of an ugly duckling, folks, and he knows he's ugly. <laughs> Henry Tryon established the Cox description in his 1939 book, Fearsome Creatures. The squonk is of a very retiring disposition, generally traveling around at twilight and dusk. Because of its misfitting skin, which is covered with warts and moles, it is always unhappy. In fact, it is said by people who are best able to judge to be the most morbid of, of beasts. 
Hunters who are good at tracking are able to follow a squonk by its tear-stained trail, for the animal weeps constantly. When cornered, an escape seems impossible, or when surprised and frightened, it may even dissolve itself into tears, so the scientific name dissolvens. So I thought that was that was quite fitting. Squonk hunters are most successful <laughs> on frosty, moonlit nights, when tears are shed slowly and the animal dislikes moving about. It may have been heard weeping under the boughs of dark hemlock trees. Mr. J.P. Wentling, formerly of Pennsylvania, but now at St. Anthony Park in Minnesota, had a disappointing experience with a squonk near Mount Alto. He made a clever capture by mimicking the squonk and inducing it to hop into a sack, in which he was carrying it home, when suddenly the burden lightened and the weeping ceased. Wentling unslung the sack and looked into it. There was nothing but tears and bubbles. The range of the squonk is very limited. Few people outside of Pennsylvania have even heard of the quaint beast, which is said to be fairly common in the hemlock forests. The legend holds that the creature's skin is ill-fitting, being covered with warts and blemishes, as I say. Because it is ashamed of its appearance, it hides from plain sight and spends much of its time weeping. So what I found quite interesting, folks, is the easiest time to find it, obviously, would be moonlit nights. But it says, oh, the moonlit nights is when it hides out. So uh, I do find that interesting. If you're going to have a beast that you want to make up and tell people is out there and you want to make it hard for them to find it, tell them you, you can only <laughs> find it on dark nights because this was before you had flashlights and everything else. So easy to go out there and find it in the forest. So so what do you think of the Squonk Nate? Quite an interesting tale. It definitely is. I, I want to say if if anyone's interested in seeing what this looks like, just Google it. It truly is a very ugly creature, and I feel bad for it. It almost looks like a big wrinkly pig with, like, the feet of, like, a dinosaur, and then it's just, like, all covered in, like, moles and pimples, and you can see it's crying in the picture that I'm looking at. Um, but I grew up in central, kind of central northern Pennsylvania, and I'd never heard of it. And then I think you brought it up to me one time when we, were, yeah. when we first started talking. I was like, no, that's interesting, so I looked it up. <laughs> And I even reached out to one of my friends that I knew grew up in northern Pennsylvania. Oh, he cool. never heard of it. Wow. But um, it's definitely a, a legend because there's a Wikipedia page for it. And there's like a cryptozoology fandom page for it. So obviously it, it has legs in, in the area. And um, I don't think I ever want to go out there on a frosty moonlit <laughs> night and hear something crying in underneath the brush. Yeah. That would just freak me out. I, I would probably have a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, f fair enough. And the other things that I think is uh, kind of cool, it'd probably be easier to follow that trail if you see all these little ice dots, you know, you know oh, there's the tears. So, um, yeah, uh, interesting one. And like I say, folks, I don't know every cryptid story from all over the world, but I've definitely never heard of anything like the squonk anywhere else in the world. So very fascinating one and pretty harmless, it seems like. It's not one of those things that's out yeah, to eat you. Yeah, it's it's so self-conscious and like afraid of itself that it's just going to dissolve into a puddle of tears, which is really sad if you think about it. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah, must have been bullied a lot in school, poor, poor, poor fellow. <laughs> so um, a few of these here, folks, I'll kind of shorten up because I don't want to keep Nate all night. I'll, I'll kind of read very short abbreviations on some of these uh, because I've got a couple at the end that are really good and, and I want to go into a bit more depth. So the first one here, folks, is Another Road. And this is Shades of Death Road. And folks, this is not just a local legend of the name. There's actually the street sign that says Shades of Death Road, which I thought was awesome. Uh, not only is there one in Pennsylvania, there's also one in New Jersey. 
Now, this uh, Shades of Death Road is in Avella, Pennsylvania, which is in the southwestern part of the state. So buckle your seatbelt, and if you dare, drive the 35 miles to the quaint town of Avella. So that's from Pittsburgh. Defined by winding country streets and a rolling landscape, Avella is home to what some say is one of the area's most haunted roads. Driving down the haunted road near Pittsburgh, if you believe in the paranormal, just might give you nightmares. Shades of Death, the name of this allegedly haunted road near Pittsburgh immediately evokes dark connotations, but where the name comes from isn't known for certain. Local lore, however, asserts that the road darkened even before the day in the 1880s because of the towering hemlock trees. As a result, early travelers, before the days of streetlights, had to find a way to light their path as they traveled Shades of Death Road. Perhaps it is because of the ominous name of Shades of Death Road has become the backdrop for numerous terrifying stories and urban legends. One story tells of miners who in 1922 became trapped deep underground in a mine. Some versions say the miners' bodies were never recovered, while others state their bodies were buried in unmarked graves on Shades of Death Road. So, another tale here tells of a man strolling down Shades of Death Road on a moonless night when he stumbled over a log. As he fell to the ground, he discovered a dead body. Some say the spirit of that dead body remains on Shades of Death Road. Some drivers claim to have seen a shadowy figure darting around the road, causing them to lose concentration and even crash. In some versions, the driver has seen an apparition in glowing white. Who haunts Shades of Death Road remains murky. One thing is clear. Those who have traveled down this ominously named road tell tales that just might send chills of terror down your spine. Another tale is this. The story goes that this miserable young guy lost his girl, his job, his dog, his keys, etc. So he hung himself on the lowest point of the road from one of the trees that forms the canopy. He wasn't found for days. Now his spirit haunts the area, and if you're driving at night, make sure you don't stop or someone or something will start chasing you. I've heard extreme cases of cars not starting in the basin or people getting out of their car and hearing footsteps or unexplained breathing. In the 80s and early 90s, rumors flew about devil worshipping going on there. So again, folks, this is another road that's kind of got everything combined into one. And there you go. You've got that whole satanic panic and uh, got to <laughs> throw in the devil worshipping at the end. So what do you know about Shades of Death Road, Nate? Not far from you. Yeah, that's one that just the name alone kind of makes you want to go there. Like oh, yeah. just being a, a horror fan or a, a fan of the paranormal, like you just have to go check it out. Now, if you live far away, I would tell you don't make the trip because it's really just an old country road <laughs> with nothing happening. Um, maybe you have to go at night. I wasn't brave enough to, to drive down the road at night, but it's um like people live on this road and there's actually mailboxes that have their addresses. And it says, just for example, like one, two, three, four shades of death road and it says it in stickers on their mailboxes which is crazy um i drove down i think i parked at the top and there's like this really old cemetery um i took a cool picture there and then there's like an old farmhouse looking like uh, church there as well and then i walked down the road and it's just kind of like a gravelly road it's like one way um i saw i saw a mail lady she waved to me she was delivering mail to one of the mailboxes so People still drive up and down this road, so just be careful going there. But I walked down and um wasn't a whole lot happening. Like I found an old mailbox and I found a sign that there was like a drilling company of a well that was there and it says Shades of Death Road on the sign. <laughs> That's really all I saw. Um my friend Mothman46 on Instagram was right. recently there 
he went this past weekend and he said to me the the spookiest thing about Shades of Death Road is probably the money that they paid for all the no trespassing signs. <laughs> I bet. Um, <laughs> so like the road obviously is public domain, but like all throughout the woods, there's no trespassing signs. They probably have like kids that are always in there messing stuff up. So they don't want people to go in. So I'd say be cautious. And if you want to just take a, a spooky drive down a road, definitely check it out. Um, but the, the legends are pretty cool. And, and like the, the guy that was, walking down the road and stumbled over the log and found a dead body. It's just kind of creepy. And yeah. I even read that the the residents of the road petitioned to get the name changed. But like, it was just such an old name that they never got like the power to change it. So it's still, still called Shades of Death. Okay. Yeah. Um, interesting <laughs> enough. And yeah, it's just one of those things where I, I can't blame them because um, obviously if like we've talked about some of these other places, if you live there, you you just want to be left alone. You just want to go about your life, and you sure as heck don't want people turning up every weekend, driving up and down looking for ghosts when you mm -hmm. live there and you've probably never seen anything. So you're like, there's nothing here. But they go, oh, right. you're just part of the conspiracy, you know? So, yeah, um, I can fully understand why they would want to change that name. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, just it's it's just one of those places, man. When I read that name, I thought, again, I thought this will be like Blue Mist Road or it's... You know, uh, I can't remember the other one. Devil's Run, I think it'll be it's just the, the name that they give the road. But, yeah, it's actually the name, which is which is, uh, yeah, probably like you say, it's not very great for the people living there. Right. <laughs> for the, the simple country folk that just want to have a quiet night. <laughs> That's the one. So the next one here we've got, folks, is back to the northwestern part of the state. So up in the Lake area area, I think it's uh, County South. And this is the story of the lady in white or Elizabeth, from the Connet Lake Hotel. The Hotel Connet, called, and maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong, uh, Nate. Um, uh, Conneaut, yeah. Conneaut, That's fine, you. though. No, yep. no, no, thanks. The crown jewel of Lake Conneaut in Crawford County dates back to 1903. It features 150 rooms. That's, that's a big hotel back then. Old-time, turn-of-the-century ambiance, and as to be expected by its vintage, sometime guests, who checked in but never checked out. On April 29, 1943, there was a devastating fire at the hotel that destroyed a large portion of the building. Some report that the fire was started by an electrical short caused by lightning from a storm, while others claim the building suffered a direct lightning strike. The former was confirmed by hotel employees, so they say it was hit by lightning. For many years, it has been rumored that two hotel guests, a bride and a groom on their honeymoon, were trapped inside during the 1943 fire. It is said that the groom survived, but the bride perished in the fire because she was searching desperately for her husband. To this day, unexplained events are said to occur in the hotel, and many people attribute these strange occurrences to the bride Elizabeth, who roams the hotel, still searching for her lost love. They were in room 321, and she's said to mainly wander in the hallway of the third floor, still in her wedding gown, trailing a phantom scent of jasmine while softly sobbing. So she's been hanging out with the squonk as well, folks. <laughs> the room itself is the site of orbs, whispered conversation, messed up linens, water that runs for no reason, and windows that open by themselves. Elizabeth doesn't limit herself to the third floor, though. She's been reported all over the hotel and even in the adjoining amusement park. Those whispered voices have been heard all over the building, allegedly the otherworldly playback of the last conversation between Elizabeth and her husband. She's become so famous that the hotel restaurant 
bar is called Elizabeth's Dining Room and Spirit Lounge in her honor. Heck, it's even mentioned in the Wikipedia. And her ghost book is prominent in the hotel lobby. But she, spare, she shares this space with a bevy of other spooks. There's lore regarding an old chef who dismembered a butcher in the kitchen. A spectral couple can be seen dancing in the first floor grand ballroom. A soldier has been spotted in a tree on the hotel lot. The spirit of a former hotel employee named John, well, I'm getting goosebumps, may join you in the lobby. And there are mm -hmm. tales of little Angelina, a child whose legend claimed died long ago when her tricycle either tumbled down a flight of stairs or off of the hotel balcony. She now rides her trike on the porch of the hotel, crashing into people. Angelina has also been spotted in the halls, looking for playmates. Although there are reports of a spirit named Elizabeth in the hotel's long corridor, the fact she died in the fire has been disputed. In fact, it's now reported that the hotel was closed at the time and no lives were lost in the fire. Only a few deaths tied to the hotel have been confirmed, including a man named Dennis Mead, who was stabbed with a knife on the property in 1791, and a guest staying at the hotel who reportedly suffered a heart attack in room 82 in 2006. It is believed, however, that the property on which the hotel was built had seen much violence and bloodshed during a major massacre involving the Iroquois and Erie Indians. So there we go, Native American burying ground who inhabited the area in the 16th and 17th centuries. The lake was also raised in 1840, causing an outbreak of the deadly malaria virus. Now, this one's interesting because I always like these insider stories. And this is one former employee named Kim tells this tale. I worked at the hotel at the front desk, the 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift. And after listening to others and experiencing my own unexplainable per se things, I am a true believer. One night, it was the opening of the season and the hotel wasn't busy. Myself and my daughter, who stopped in to see me on her way home, were talking and we heard a commotion upstairs and, of course, we went to investigate. She found 29 rooms in all on the second and third floor were open, the tubs were full of water, the sinks were full of water, and a few of the showers were wet and some had as clear as day footprints in the showers. I called security and, along with Mark, the security guard, we discovered the 29 rooms in all. It was crazy. There were only three rooms rented out that night, and they were all on the first floor. So that's a pretty creepy one there, Nate. Yeah, for sure. And the Hotel Conyad is something that's really close to home for me because I went to high school in Meadville, which is in Crawford County. And we actually used to have our harvest time, like dances, harvest dances. We would have them at the Hotel Conyad in the ballroom. And this wow. hotel is so old, like, when we were dancing, you would actually feel the floor, like, bounce beneath us, wow. which is crazy. And, like, I think this hotel used to be bigger because I think where Elizabeth was staying, um, well, it says, yeah, 323, but there must have been, like, floors above that. I think it used to have, like, four or five floors, and then okay. when that fire happened, it, it's only three floors now. Um, but the hotel is still open. They just did Easter brunch this past Easter Sunday. Um, we didn't get to, to go in for brunch. We had our own meal, but we stopped by and took pictures. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, and, and at Halloween time, they actually do um, like an actual haunted house. Like they, they put in props and stuff, and you can actually walk up the different hotel rooms. But it's really old-timey, and I just love the story of like the bride in white. I think it's really interesting. It's, it's a tra tragedy what happened um, with her you know, losing her husband and, and everything like that. And she's still there searching for him. But I think it's such an interesting story. And um, actually, 
me and my partner are going to the hotel next weekend for a ghost hunt. So wow. I have to let you guys know how that goes. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really intrigued on because I've actually never done a ghost tour there. So it's going to be cool. Yeah, that uh, the, that broad and white trope, um, it definitely seems to be like the Phantom Hitchhiker. I mean, there seems to be versions nearly all over the world, you know, different places where people and, and again, I mean, you see something in white and especially if you see a female, we're usually going to assume they're wearing a wedding dress. But yeah, I, I mean, this is definitely a site that if I would have had the time, we could have really dug into it because they got a lot going on there. And like you say, that site's so old. Uh, I'm not surprised that there's a lot going on there. Now, the, the next one here is is really interesting because, again, folks, this is something that I haven't heard of in a lot of places. I have heard of it in a few places, but not a lot. So this is in Pennsylvania. This is another cryptid case. And this is, believe it or not, gargoyles. And this is from Bradford and Washington counties in the northeastern part of the state. I actually don't know a lot about this one, <laughs> so I'm going to let you take the lead. <laughs> yeah, no, fair, fair enough. There seems to be some confusion between Thunderbird sightings and that of gargoyles. Some reports in southwestern Pennsylvania have described the creatures as large gargoyles, which is understandable given the portrait of gargoyles painted by thousands of statues and ancient paintings as a winged, somewhat reptilian creature that stands on two legs. The creature had an almost prehistoric look about it, according to the witness. There is, however, one compelling legend. Some reports in southwestern Pennsylvania have described the creatures as large gargoyles, which is understandable given the portrait of gargoyles painted by thousands of statues and ancient paintings as winged, somewhat reptilian creatures that stand on two legs. There is, however, one compelling legend. The first sighting was in June of 1993. Witnesses were looking at Allentown, uh, so, so they were in Allentown or around Allentown, PA, when they saw a seven-foot-tall creature walk in front of their car, and they were not scared of it. There was another later sighting in Chicora and East Brady. In March of 2011, a man was driving a rural road when he thought he was coming up on a deer. When he got closer, however, he saw that it was 7 to 8 feet tall and had a Mothman-like stature. In and around Butler County, a number of people have seen what they describe as a gargoyle. One encounter re reported to researcher Stan Gordon in March 2011, so this will be the same case that I just described, but it says a man involved a man driving in rural Pennsylvania. He saw what he thought was a deer on the side of the road, and when he eased closer, a leather-skinned, eight-foot-tall humanoid shape stood from a squat and crossed the road in three steps. Now, that's for something to cross a road in three, three steps, folks, they've got a big stride. The witness described the head of the monster as sloped in the back like it wore a bicycle helmet. Its muscular arms ended in claws, and its legs bent like a bird's. But the strangest part of the creature were the wings on its back that lay flat on its body, the tips reaching up to its ears. This wasn't the only encounter with the gargoyle. In the same month, at least six other motorists saw the butler gargoyle along this stretch of road. And sadly, I couldn't find a lot more on it, but this has definitely got shades of the Mothman, very similar description, so maybe these are one and the same. Maybe people who saw the Mothman were describing the same thing or vice versa. And it is, I mean, it's across the state, but if we look at how big the U.S. is, it is in the same general vicinity. Uh, mm -hmm. But interesting little one there, eh? 
Yeah, for sure. I actually just Googled it and there's a cryptid page on it and there's like a picture of it standing from behind a witness rendering and it looks a lot like a Mothman because it has its wings and it's just ha- has like, you know, very man-like stature. And I think the one picture shows like red eyes. So I agree that definitely could be the Mothman. Um, and that's kind of recent. That was like in the 90s and yeah. 2011. So that's that's kind of cool. It's not something that was just like happening back in the 50s and 60s. Well, there's a gentleman named uh, Lon Strickler, and he does a website called Phantoms and Monsters. And I know about that website, and I know about Lon from one of the podcasts that I was really into when I first kind of discovered podcasts in in, in you know Paranormal Unexplained. And uh, Lon basically takes witness sightings. People can email him or call him or whatever, and then he'll post about it. So that's a good site, like especially if these cryptids and that are things that you're interested in, Nate, that's a good site to check out. Lon is the one who basically broke the story. Remember the Chicago Mothman that they were talking about a few years ago? Like actually flying through the city, yeah. Yeah, Lon's basically the one that broke that story. He was the first one that, yeah, that I know of that had something about it. So Because, I mean, you basically had that Point Pleasant happened in 69 i think or 60 mm-hmm. somewhere around there and then nothing for years like at least nothing that got mainstream and then all of a sudden here we've got mothman in chicago so <laughs> yeah but but yeah that's it, funny because you normally think of him like in rural areas and then he just shows up in like the second or the third big biggest city in the united states like what's he trying to do there <laughs> yeah it look it, it is really fascinating and that's what i thought when that first happened the first thing it, to to be honest the first thing that went through my mind was, yeah, somebody's just telling a story. But when more and more of them were coming out, and in the end, I think there were like 10 or 12 different witness statements, then I thought, okay, well, maybe there's something much more to this. And I didn't dig too deep into it because there was basically that wave of sightings and then not a lot more going go on about it. But yeah, like you say, I did find it quite fascinating. Of all the places you would think Mothman would turn up, I wouldn't think it would be in Chicago. <laughs> and and at the time that's what people were saying oh is there going to be some major uh happen happening in chicago you know is is there going to be a building that collapses or something and nothing really came of it thankfully hmm. um that i know of i i don't remember anything major happening there so hopefully i'm right on that uh yeah let's hope yeah so the next one folks this again this one has got kind of tie-ins with other states and different areas but this one is very Ohio, Pennsylvania related, and this is Zombieland. And this definitely seems to be a story that did have some basis in reality, but it's definitely one of those urban myths that's kind of built up over time and people have added and added to it. So I've got a lot written about it, but I'm going to try and truncate it down a bit because of poor Nate, because I know it's where we've been on here for over two hours already. So (laughs) I'll I'll give you a very brief overlay, folks, and then I'll take you through the supposed. seven steps of Zombieland. So the area that has come to be known as Zombieland lies in and around the town of Hillsville, located in western Pennsylvania, close to the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. Through research and interviews, the story is traced back to at least the early 1970s. It is important to note that the initial stories only included specific place, a specific place in the woods, Zombieland, that people, usually teens, would visit late at night to do the sort of late-night things teenagers like to do. Occasionally, these origin stories would include a reference to 
a torch, or eternal flame. But by and large, the stories were simply about a spooky place to visit. Before too long, the torch became known as the Zombie Torch, and visitors to this area late at night were supposed to try and light the torch. If successful, the light of the torch would cause the woods to fill up with zombies, apparently lured there by the glow from the torch. Still, even with the addition of this torch lighting ritual to the legend, Zombieland was still only the area of woods surrounding the torch. From this point on, the legend began to grow, expanding the boundaries of Zombieland considerably. Indeed, the list of strange and spooky inhabitants of Zombieland grew. As well, as of now, Zombieland is said to be home to various ghosts, monsters, satanic cults, of course, melonhead-type creatures, serial killers, gangs, and yes, even the occasional zombie. So, what you're supposed to do, folks, is you're supposed to go through this in a specific order, similar to some of these where I've talked about going on roads or through the forests and going through gates in a certain order. So the current Zombieland legend states that there are seven stops, and they must be visited in that specific order. So the first one is the Virgin Mary statue. So when you read the legend associated with the first stop, it's easy to see why it's the first one. It's because that's when you're supposed to know if it's safe or not to enter Zombieland. Near the corner of 224 and Churchill Road, East River Road, is the former St. Lawrence Catholic Church. At the front of the church is a grotto-like area. Now the focal point of what you're looking for is a large statue of the Virgin Mary. According to the legend, prior to entering Zombieland, you must first visit the statue, paying close attention to Mary's hands. If her hands are apart or open, then it is safe to proceed into Zombieland. However, if her hands are clasped, then it is not safe to enter, and you should make a hasty retreat. So the second one now, folks, is the haunted railroad tracks. Now, if you continue down Churchill Road, you will reach a set of railroad tracks. This is where people reported hearing a ghost train, usually in the form of a train whistle or the roar of an oncoming engine. It is said that when these noises are heard, no real train ever appears. The sounds just keep getting closer and closer, and then either stop suddenly or slowly fade away. Now the next one is the Hilltown Bridge. Again, not a lot to go on at this location, but it is said that you will be able to see ghost lights around the bridge. The earliest reports are that the ghost light could be seen around the bridge. More recent reports with the lights under the bridge. There is no known version that explains why the ghost lights are hanging around or under this bridge. I should also note that several reports of seeing ghost lights were eventually attributed to non-ghostly people hanging out under the bridge. So that makes sense. Now that bridge has mm-hmm. been replaced in the recent past. The old bridge was very spooky looking when I saw photos of it, folks, and you could see why it was so spooky. But now it's a basic concrete bridge with a culvert. It's not all that spooky looking now. Now, the Killing Fields. This is the next stop. Almost immediately after the Hilltown Bridge, you come to a T. As you sit at the T in the road, look across the road and directly in front of you, you will see an area known as the Killing Fields. All sorts of odd things are said to be heard here, with gunshots and screams being the most prevalent, although not necessarily at the same time. There's also the occasional sighting of shadowy figures moving around the field. Without a doubt, the strangest thing associated with the killing fields are the hellhounds, said to inhabit the woods on the other side of the fields. It's assumed that based on their name, these creatures originate from hell. Other than that, there's no reason why they are hanging around. I can't find any reason anyway. Now you turn left at the T and you continue down the road and it'll bring you to the next stop, which also happens to be the first one that actually has a dark history attached to it. 
and this is the Coffee Run Stream Culvert. The next stop is the most recent addition to the Zombieland legend. It's also the only one that is tied to an actual event. In October of 2000, the charred remains of a 12-year-old named Shannon Koss were discovered under a small culvert near a dirt access road off of Hillsville Road. Arrested and charged with the crime were three young men. Authorities would soon start piecing together the, the events of October the 8th, 2000. What transpired in and around the culvert that evening can only be described as brutal, tragic, and above all, completely and utterly senseless. Truth be told, it's one of those cases that reaffirms my belief that we should be more afraid of the living than the dead. With such a dark event having occurred, you would think that there are all sorts of ghostly activity being reported, but currently there are no reports of anything actually happening here, not a single ghostly sighting. Oddly enough, it makes me happy that there are no ghosts, and hopefully that she has found some peace in the afterlife, and like I say, I fully agree with that. Now, the mm -hmm. next one is one of the more famous parts of this trek, which is the Graffiti Bridge. Now, from Hillville Road, turn left onto Sky Hill Road and follow it until you see a small concrete bridge in front of you. Welcome to Graffiti Bridge. By most accounts, this location is at the epicenter of all the Zombieland legends and is one of the longest standing stories, often predating the start of, Stombie, of Zombieland, the Zombie Torch. The earliest versions of legends concerning this bridge refer to it as Graffiti Bridge and state that you are supposed to try to find your name written on the bridge in graffiti. Now, if you should be unlikely enough to find your name on the bridge, the moment you see it, the bridge people are going to come out from under the bridge and get you. Just who these bridge people are is never explained. Although there are several first-person accounts of people creating elaborate pranks where they would go out to the bridge, spray-paint a friend's name, and then take said friend out to the bridge in the dead of night to watch them freak out when they spotted their name. There's That's also awesome. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty cool that they go through that much effort. There's also a slight variant to the Find Your Name legend, stating that you have to spray-paint your own name on the bridge, and, what's, and that will trigger the bridge people to come out. But this is obviously a cautionary tale about not defacing or vandalizing property. Either way, don't go writing your name on the bridge. So where do the zombies come into play? Here's where it gets interesting. Uh, the most popular names on this location is Graffiti Bridge. It's also been known by various other names. Forbidden Bridge, Frankenstein Bridge, Ghost Bridge, Haunted Bridge, Hookman, or Hookman's Bridge, and Puerto Rican Bridge and then also White Bridge and Zombie Bridge. With most of the alternate names mentioned above, the bridge people are still the ones who will attack you. However, in the three instances of the Puerto Rican Bridge, Hookman's Bridge, and Zombie Bridge, the name originates from who is going to come out from under the bridge as opposed to the bridge people. For example, if, if you know the bridge is Hookman's Bridge, seeing or writing your name on the bridge will cause the Hookman to come out. The name Puerto Rican Bridge appears to have originated during a time when there were a lot of Puerto Rican names written on the bridge. I should also note that, in this case, it is a living, breathing gang that will come out from under the bridge, as opposed to anything supernatural. So yeah, folks, so just imagine this Puerto Rican gang hanging out in the middle of nowhere under a bridge waiting for you to come out, and you have to know that this bridge is known as Puerto Rican Bridge. If it's Zombie Bridge, they just go, oh darn, he almost, almost convinced us to come out and get him. Yeah, so it is quite interesting how some of these legends go. 
Those who refer to the location as Ghost Bridge or Haunted Bridge usually will touch upon the notion that a teenager committed suicide by jumping off of the bridge and that ghost hunts uh, are done around the bridge. Now, to date, nothing has been found to substantiate that such an event ever happened. And the bridge is only a very short distance over Coffee Run. So I've actually had a look, folks, and it's like jumping maybe a foot or two. And the odds of you mm-hmm. killing yourself and doing that, yeah, you'd have to hit your head just right on a rock or something. But back to the zombies. While there's no doubt that this bridge is part of the original Zombieland mythos, there is a bit of chicken and egg debate whether the bridge came first or the zombie torch came first. Now, the seventh and last is the zombie torch, of course. Just on the other side of the graffiti bridge is a small path that winds through the woods. The short walk down this path will bring you face to face with your final stop, the zombie torch. According to legend, anyone foolish enough to try and light the torch is in for the shock of their lives if they succeed. That's because the torch will signify that the zombies are coming for you. Before we go any further, let's point out that this torch is an old vent pipe designed to vent fumes from an underground natural gas field. Keep that in mind should you decide to want to try and light it. (laughs) Yeah, folks, don't blow yourselves up. I'm certainly not advocating you try. And it is padlocked, by the way. Without a doubt, the zombie torch is the location in zombie land. There are variations where the zombie torch is referred to as the eternal flame. These stories are usually tied to versions when the bridge is not called Zombie Bridge. Hookman's Bridge equals lighting the eternal flame summons the Hookman. So put it another way, if you visit Hookman Bridge and don't see your name written in graffiti, you can still summon him by lighting the eternal flame. The current the current legend says that if, you're, if you made it all the way to the Zombie Torch, making sure you stop at each of the other locations in a specific order, you will be able to light the torch to summon the zombies. Now, one final note before we take our leave. And there's an old, seldom-mentioned offshoot of the Torch legend that states there is a foreboding house called the Blood House. That's got a good name for it. Nearby. Lighting the torch will cause the inhabitants of Blood House, usually a witch or members of a satanic cult, to come out after you. And while there was indeed an old house nearby, it's long gone. Like so many of these others we've talked about, Nate, is just foundation. It is said Mm -hmm. that if the stops are not made in the listed order, it won't work. Of course, there is no consensus no consensus of what will or won't work, so we really don't know anyway. So yeah, that look, uh, that's a very elaborate one, folks. And Nate, I'm sure it's one that's kind of built up over time. And, and the gentleman who I got most of this information from, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he did a lot of research into this. And this is one of those urban legends that he definitely found has kind of snowballed and snowballed over the years. Uh, but it's one of the most kind of iconic or famous ones in the area. So what do you know about uh, Zombieland? Exactly. And and Zombieland, when I first heard about it, it really intrigued me because you hear a lot of things about like Bigfoot or the Mothman or ghosts, the haunted places, but you don't hear a lot of specifically like you're going to get attacked by zombies. Yeah, so. yeah. It was definitely something that set it apart, and it was close to where I went to college. I never went out there when I was in college, but um, I made the trip up this past February. It was a little snowy, so um, I first stopped at the Grotto of the Virgin Mary, and she had her hands clasped, of course, because she's a statue, and that probably doesn't <laughs> change, but, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, kids like to, to make that up. But And then you just drive down the road, and there's the haunted tracks there's not much to it and then you pass 
that bridge and like you said it's been replaced so it's not as creepy anymore um what i thought was really cool was the killing field sign so whoever owns this plot of land was probably just sick of like kids like going into his field so there's an actual sign up and it's still there at least when i went in february it says no trespassing no motorized vehicles or you may find my tractor in your yard and then there's two skull and crossbones like on this sign so that's like the most extreme no trespassing sign I've, I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I, I know and that's the, at the killing fields. Yeah, I know the guy that wrote, like I say, most of, of, of what I just read. He basically said he, he was really adamant. He said, do not, no matter what, do not go out in that field. It's private property. There's nothing to see there. It's just a field. And that's what he right. said. He goes, this guy will be well within his rights to shoot you if he wants to. And that's what, you know, <laughs> he was really adamant to say, don't go in the field. You're not going to see anything in the field that you can't see from the road. Exactly. If you do go up there, just snap a picture of the the sign. That's really all you can see there. And then, like you said, the coffee run stream culvert, that was just so sad. Like a 12-year-old girl yeah. had to go through that. And um, I'm sure there's some some spirits that linger there. I didn't actually go down there because um, it's just kind of like an overpass. Yeah. And then Graffiti Bridge. Um, when I was driving by Graffiti Bridge is pretty much like right by the zombie torch and it's there's still a lot of traffic that goes by there. So I wasn't really in the mood to stop and look for my name or anything, but <laughs> um, it's still there. And then the zombie torch, unfortunately, there's no trespassing signs in the woods. So I didn't go into the woods. Oh, okay, fair enough. Um, but I have a picture from that post. We might be talking about the same guy, but I got a lot of my information from a handle called Strange and Spooky World. So you can actually check out his blog and he like went through all the steps and actually like traveled to all of them and, I think, and has great I think information. That is him. Yeah. Cause he was okay. really in depth, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, don't light the torch, but <laughs> cause <laughs> yeah. it's, it's natural gas or whatever, but it's, it's just something that's cool. Like I said, you don't really hear about zombies just by themselves. So it's kind of that urban legend that's that I heard it, it came about first in the seventies the and it's just kind of grew from there. Well, Nate, what else kind of came came about in the late 60s, early 70s? Um, it's it's uh, definitely Pennsylvania related, and there's a tie-in. Night of the Living Dead? Very good. That was good. like earlier, yeah. Very good. I think it came out in about 68 or 69, but you, I, I can see definitely people kind of extrapolating on this and then seeing Night of the Living Dead and some of the, the sequels and then going, oh, yeah, and there's zombies there, too, you know? So <laughs> That's um, a good tie-in, yeah. That Well, that's what that. I was thinking, yeah, because um, it's one of the kind of claims to fame that a lot of people in the horror industry, you know, in Pennsylvania, rightly so, are, are quite uh, proud of because it's basically he invented the modern zombie movie and the modern zombie trope, so he took it from being the one in the Caribbean to you know being what we think of as zombie movies now so yeah i did find that quite interesting the timing that that's when this kind of went from just being one little place in the woods to you started adding all of these steps to see the zombies you know that's true and and if anyone's in the area you can actually visit the night of the living dead cemetery in evan city where they filmed the famous first scene where they're coming to get you barbara <laughs> and the the first zombie he comes out and is chasing her and I took a picture on the, the grave where she stops. Um and then we also have the Night of the Living Dead 
Museum, which was in Evans City, but it recently relocated to the Monroeville Mall, where the um, is it Day of the Living Dead? The the like the sequel yeah. was filmed in that mall, and then they That's, actually have yeah. a bronze bust of of Romero in the mall that you can go visit as well. That's the one that, like, when I think of Night of the Living Dead, it's actually Day of the Living Dead, like you say. That's the one that is, like, burnt into my memory of being in the mall. And and um, that's the first one that I really remember, like, what you just said. You know, before Army of Darkness and all these other movies, that's the first time I really remember seeing a quote-unquote zombie movie and going, that's what your prototypical zombie is supposed to be like in this day and age. Exactly. Definitely some cool film history in Pennsylvania as well. Uh, well, you know, you guys have done a lot there. It's it's definitely a state with a very wide and diverse background and all kinds of things to be proud of out of, out of the state. And uh, <laughs> I mean, man, you, you've got a lot of knowledge yourself. And now, folks, we look, we've saved the best for last. Um, I was saying to Nate earlier, I really think that this is one of the best stories that I've ever heard as far as a local legend or urban legend goes. And guess what? It's true. And this is the story of the Green Man in Pittsburgh. So the man may have been burned alive. His face melted like candle wax. He might have been struck by lightning as a boy. His skin could have been turned a radioactive green from a horrible accident at the Decance power plant. And again, I know I pronounced that wrong, so sorry, Nate. Um... <laughs> Some even said... Oh, you're fine. I don't. I actually don't know how to say that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's Duquesne. Um, oh, some, Duquesne, yes. Yeah. Some even said he was a specter doomed to stalk desolate western Pennsylvania highways for all eternity. The details changed depending on who was telling the story, but everyone growing up in the Pittsburgh area heard a story about Charlie No-Face eventually, the Green Man, the monster of Beaver County. There's Beaver County again. Another Pittsburgh native, the story of the spectral green man, oh sorry, among Pittsburgh natives, the story of the spectral green man is a staple of local lore. But unlike many folk legends, this one is essentially true. The green man is said to have been an electrical worker who was an, in an accident that melted his face and killed him. His ghost has subsequently been seen near the site of the accident, which is thought to have occurred in one of Pennsylvania's abandoned railroad, railroad tunnels. The most popular candidate and location for viewing the spirit is the tunnel in South Park Township. His shimmering green form has been said to have been seen late at night stalking the tunnel. Now, folks, as I just said, the story is actually true. In early August of 1919, eight-year-old Ray Robinson was walking with his sister and a few friends in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, when they noticed a bird's nest perched atop a tree next to an abandoned trolley trestle. Wanting to get a closer look, Ray climbed up, but he accidentally touched a wire that had once powered the trolley. Almost a year earlier, another boy who touched the same wire died after two painful weeks. Yet the power line was still active when Ray reached for it. He was severely electrocuted. His nose, lips, ears, and eyes were all gone or misshapen. His arms were maimed. One of his hands was blown clean off. His suffering was unimaginable, and I can't even imagine it, folks. I'm very... I'm very susceptible to electricity, so I wouldn't even want to know what this poor guy went through. And there's actually pictures of him. Like, you can see what his face looked, it's, looked like. It's really sad. Yeah. Somehow he survived. Doctors marveled. But Ray didn't have much of a life after that, at least for a while. 
Ray wasn't exactly mistreated, but he did get isolated and ostracized, even by his own family, who would eat separately from him. He tried to make the best of it. An avid baseball fan, he listened to every game he could pick up on his radio. I used to do that. I used to listen to all the Cardinal games on the radio. <laughs> he learned to read Braille and how to make wallets and doormats out of old tires. When he became a man, his family fashioned a small apartment for him out in their garage. He managed to dodge notoriety until he began craving a respite from the prison life had become. He started walking the local highways, always alone, always at night. This is where the man becomes the legend. Ray developed a reputation for walking around Route 351 and neighboring roads in Beaver County at night. Obviously, the way he looked garnered some attention. Rumors spread. People started to actually seek him out. And for many, he embraced that. He loved to smoke. He loved to drink beer. These late-night encounters became one of his main connections to the outside world. Though for Ray, that wasn't always a good thing. Not everyone who tracked down Ray on those backcountry roads was content to share a beer with him, take a picture, and move on. As anyone who has gone through life being different knows, and as Ray certainly knew, the world can be a very cruel place. People would beat him up. They would urinate into beer bottles, then give them to him, so he never drank an open drink. Sometimes people would pick him up, drive him to the middle of nowhere, and toss him out of the car. People were just so cruel to him, and he never understood why. So when a car would approach him as he walked, Ray would stop and wait nervously for what might come next. The sound of tires and engines made him skittish. Rumor had it that Ray even carried a pistol in his belt after one particularly nasty encounter, and I couldn't blame the man. The Green Man moniker came not from the rumors about him working at the power plant, but from something a little more gruesome. His nose was basically an open wound his entire life. It would get infected quite often, and that would make it turn green. Why he's called Charlie No-Face instead of Ray No-Face remains a mystery. People need to understand, this was a human being, a real person, and someone who endured one of the most tragic lives you'll ever encounter. Underneath it all, all the people who met him said he was a beautiful, kind man. Hundreds of people have been interviewed about Ray all over western Pennsylvania. They were mostly young men who would go out with Ray or pick him up and drive him around, and the majority of these grown men broke down in tears talking about him. A lot of them regretted the way they treated him, understandably. But so many people just cried, remembering what Ray meant to them and what he did for them, or just reflecting on his life and how sad and bittersweet it actually all was. There's a photo of him posing with a woman, maybe the only woman other than members of his family he ever touched. You could tell he was happy and he wasn't scared, or sorry, she wasn't scared. There was the young man who lost a brother in Vietnam, who credits Ray's companionship and unending empathy as a major force of positivity during his grieving period. He taught countless people who would spend long nights sitting in a car or on a porch with him about the virtue of looking past the superficial, a swallowing fear, and abandoning preconceptions. He showed so many people that it was okay to be different. He actually changed lives. And through it all, Ray was never angry. He was never upset. He never asked, why me? He kept being positive being genuine, and being the kind of person and friend we all wish we could be. Everyone will remember the legends, but he meant so much more to so many people, and it really made him happy. That's the thing about urban legends. Most of them are grounded in truth, more often than not, in tragedy. Ray Robinson had a face that was unforgettable. He had a reputation that kept children up at night and continues to, to this day. They still talk about him in Beaver County. 
They talk about him all over the world. No one can keep him hidden anymore. He died in 1981 in a nursing home. He's buried in Beaver County, just a few feet away from the little boy who was electrocuted one year before him. Occasionally, you will see fresh flowers placed on his grave. He was a gleaming example of someone being given the worst and making the best out of it. Charlie No-Face, the glowing green man, the monster of Beaver County. He was more than just an urban legend. He was a man, and his name was Ray. So that's just a fascinating story, man, and you couldn't write a fiction story like that. Yeah, man, this one is, like, amazing. It's it's such a huge story, like... I, they're like the thrillist covered it they're, if you go to thrillist.com and look up charlie no face legend true story they have a really cool animation um and you can see like basically what he looked like with the the open wound they they even have pictures of him like like you were saying we want to hit home that this is a real man like this is a man that suffered an incredible accident misfiguring all of his face like he has no eyeballs he doesn't have a nose and he would actually wear like sunglasses with one of those prosthetic, you know, those funny noses. Like he would yeah. wear those just to, to cover up the holes in his face. And it was really sad. But um, I need to head out to Route 351 and just kind of walk the road where he was just to get a vibe of it. Um, since he was such a kind man, I don't think there's going to be any bad vibes there. Right. But um, just the fact that he would have to walk at night to, to hide his face and these teenagers actually started bringing him cigarettes and beers and they would take pictures with him. It, it's kind of, even if they were almost making fun of him, it's, it's kind of like he had notoriety and, and it was nice that he did have some, some contact to the, to the outside world. I wish people would have been nice and nicer to him in the day, but um, it's such a huge story. Like even YouTubers with thousands of subscribers cover urban legends that turned out to be true. One was Cropsey and the other, you know, is is the green man of Beaver County because he was a real person. And um, there's also a green man's tunnel in, in South Park, Pennsylvania, which is really not close to Beaver at all where he grew up, <laughs> which is kind of weird. Um, but I read that the reason why he's supposed to haunt the green man's tunnel is because the kids that would talk to him and stuff would put him in his car and he wouldn't know where he's going. And they would take him to this tunnel and kind of like leave him and like abuse him, which is is terrible. But um, it's supposed to be like one of the sites where his spirit comes back to haunt. Um, so there's a couple different places you can visit the Green Man's Tunnel and then also Route 351 where he walked. And like you said, his actual grave is still in Beaver County. I need to make it up there as well. Well, and one of the fascinating things to me is through that whole story and everything that I read about him, that's it. He didn't dwell on the people who treated him badly. He was just thankful for the people who he got along with and that treated him well. He just, he kind of adjusted and like, for example, like they say, you know, people were peeing in the beer bottles and giving him beer. So he mm -hmm. just wouldn't drink an open drink. You know, he didn't say, oh, screw everyone. I don't want to, you know, he, he, he just, he had that kind of soul that he, he just didn't judge everyone by what a few people did to him. And I think that that's a lesson that all of us, in our lives, I mean, I've I've definitely learned that lesson at time, but just like everyone, I think nearly every person on the planet, short of children, have still got some prejudices in our life. Maybe it's something someone did to you in the past. Maybe a guy in a motorcycle jacket beat you up, so you're forever, you always look at motorcycle guys differently. But, mm -hmm. I mean, the story of this is just that this guy, he's literally dealt like the worst hand you could have 
in life. Uh, like you say, he couldn't even see, but he he still interacted with these people. And like that story of the guy who lost his brother in Vietnam and Ray helped him through that. I mean, that to me, that's just that just goes to show that no matter what your condition is in life and no matter what you go through, not to trivialize what others go through, but you can still have a real positive impact on others, no matter what you may have gone through and what you may have suffered. And everyone deals with trauma differently. I, I fully get that. Some people would be very bitter and, and upset about it, and I could fully understand that. But Ray looked past all of that. You know, it's it's really amazing. And one thing that I did find quite funny is, like they say, you know, why wasn't it No-Face Ray? They knew who it was, but mm -hmm. still called him No-Face Charlie. So <laughs> I don't know if it was kind of a, at the time, that was what you called a, a boy, was Charlie kind of like the John Doe or Joe Sixpack type thing or what. But yeah, it. But again, I was just fascinated about this. I'd, I'd, I'd always kind of, I knew a little bit about it. I'd at least heard of the Green Man, but I didn't know the details. And again, this was another one that just at the end of it, the story was the reality is so much better than the story, you know. Exactly, it just makes it like that much spookier, especially around the the Halloween time, to know that something like this actually happened and there's all this build up urban legend with it too. Like it's not just uh just about the man, like there's all these urban legends. And I like your takeaway about how, you know, it kind of teaches a lesson too. It costs nothing to be kind in That's this it. world. So, That's you know, if, if never go out of your way to cause someone pain or to put them through something that they don't have to go through. Yeah. And, and, and again, and I mean, there are other parallels we can think of like the elephant man, and, you know, there have been others through time, but it's just a perfect example of this guy who kept getting. And again, we don't know, like I, we can't sit down and go, well, he was mistreated 20 times or he was mistreated 100 times, but it was definitely multiple times. And he still looked past that. And every time somebody pulled up, he didn't instantly assume they were there to do him harm. And that's hard to do, man. It's It's really hard for a person. I mean, you think about it yourself, folks. Think about maybe when you were in school and you were picked on by a bully or when you were younger and you got in a fight by someone and not everyone, but I would say the vast majority of people will have a subconscious president pres uh, prejudice against, like I say, maybe it was a certain shirt the person was wearing. Maybe he was blonde. You know what I'm saying? And, and so for Ray to just continue to just look at each opportunity as something separate and something new and not preconceive that he's going to be harmed. Uh, man, that is really the measure of, of, of a good human in my book. Exactly. I, I would almost assume, you know, when you can't see, um, yeah, that, yeah, that has to be a terrible feeling. Like you don't know, you can't see someone coming at you, like yeah. that if they're going to punch you or something, yeah. you probably like almost develop like a, a sixth sense almost like you get like, like an empath, like you kind of pick up people's vibes and stuff. Well, I, I know for a fact that that's what they say is people who lose one sense it does tend to uh, accentuate their other senses. And this is why they will, I can't remember exactly what it was, but there's certain exercises where they'll blindfold you, you know, to try and pick up your hearing or, or get your, your smelling or your taste. Uh, and, and I think that that's, it used to be at least, I think that's part of the way that they used to train like wine, wine tasters and things like that was that they would blindfold them because then you're focused, you're not focused on the, what you can see you're focused on your taste right. and your aroma so um right but yeah look and and i guess the positive thing there too is that he did live to a 
an amazingly old age for someone who has basically melted. Um, and again, it just a uh, sign of the times at that time. It was like, oh, well, kid's been killed, but we'll get out there sooner or later and take that live wire down, you know, that, that killed a kid. <laughs> we'll get around to it. It's kind of like the old stories of not putting a cap on the well. You know, it's just, yeah, it's pretty nuts. Yeah, we're very lucky to uh, still have all of our fingers and toes after growing up in the 80s and 90s, oh, all the yeah, crazy man. stuff we did. <laughs> no, I, I fully agree with that. Well, Nate, is there anything you wanted to add? Uh, look, again, man, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate so much, A, you coming on, but B, you staying up late with us and uh, getting through all of this because, th I mean, there's some amazing stuff out of Pennsylvania. And I've still got another solo episode to do as well. So, um, Oh, wow. Yeah, man. So we're going to do four episodes in total, which is double what I did for Illinois. So, <laughs> No, I appreciate it. And um, I'm going to get in bed soon. And I'm excited to hear the episode. And, you know, once again, if you want to find some cool stuff in Pennsylvania, look me up. That's Nate underscore odd on Instagram. And I'll have a link in the show notes, as always, folks. So you can just any episode you're listening to, if you go in the show notes, there'll be a link there. I'll have Nate's IG. You can just click it and head straight over there. And Nate's well worth the follow. He's always posting some pretty cool stuff on there. And like I say, a lot of the photos that I looked at to kind of get an idea about how this is or how that is, how the layout is, I got off of Nate's page. So thanks for all the work you do, Nate. And have a good night. Um, and we'll catch you next time, man. Stay in touch. Thanks, JT. I'll talk to you later. All right. Take care, Bye. man. Have a good night.